Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 15 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Comfort zones get a bad rap. They're most often linked to a conversation about laziness, complacency, and stagnation. But those are misdirected definitions. Comfort zones are actually the areas of our lives that we can perform comfortably and confidently. Areas where we have gained this feeling from arriving at competence. Some of them through years of time and effort, dedication, and passion. There are scenes and events you are comfortable operating in due to your confidence where others would be caught in the headlights. I couldn't do what you guys do. We hear it again and again from our community, and our usual response is gratitude for the compliment, but layered with humility because we just see it as our job. What we do is outside their comfort zones because we have trained for it. How many firefighters would find their comfort zone to be dentistry or university professor? We all have our specialties. How many do you have? Can you gain more? Can you expand on the ones you have? What comfort zones do you value in your career? And what is the right balance of challenging them and maintaining them for what your community requires? My guest this episode brings 20 years of operational rescue and command experience to his assignment as a captain on a special operations team in one of the largest cities in Canada. He specializes in big rig extrication, trench rescue, and forcible entry. He's a pilot, a critical care paramedic, an instructor, and a decorated member of a world-level AutoX team. He knows what he is capable of and thrives on the balance of challenge and comfort that he has achieved through experience and self-awareness. It's my pleasure to bring you Mike Desarski. Hey, Mike. What's up? How's it going? Ah, pretty good. Nice drive up from uh, downtown on the 6th. Nice. It's beautiful. Nice. I get better gas mileage up here, but then I have to drive so far to do it. So. The air's thinner, right? Yeah, yeah. much thinner. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with where you grew up. Lived in a whole bunch of different places. My dad was a bank manager, middle management, uh, so he was getting moved all over the place. Funny enough, I was actually born in Mississauga. Then they moved to Montreal afterwards. Uh, I lived there so shortly, I barely remember it, but apparently I used to speak French. Now I can't, not at all. Basically, between London and Windsor, uh, back and forth there a bunch of times. I'd say my teenage years kind of started in London, like grade 9 to 10. And then after that, they took me to the Canadian Motor City of Windsor. That's kind of where I finished off high school. Kind of the rest of my life, it played out there. It's a border town. It's a rougher town. It was, it's an interesting place to grow up. Apart from the moving around a little bit because of your dad's at work, you had a pretty typical nuclear family. Mom stayed home. Yep. Mom stayed home for us. Like a lot of moms do or did is like they have to sacrifice their own careers for the family. So she was home most of the time. And then I remember we became these like latchkey kids, which is like the new thing. Like oh, you give them a key and they could just come home on their own. I think that was like grade four or five that started. But yeah, she essentially when she went back to work when we were kind of old enough, I guess, like grade five or so was a assistant at a dental office. Funny, I look back at it and I'm like, okay, like she's like this woman that, you know, jump around the corner, you're scared. She just doesn't really react or anything, like kind of timid about things. But then like reflecting on it, it's like, well, my mom, my dad, and I had two sisters. My older sister was mentally handicapped from birth. A doctor was not a very good doctor. So it's something that shouldn't even really happen. My mom actually kind of fought uh, when she was in school. They had like a segregation of, okay, all the mentally handicapped kids go here and all the other kids go here. And my mom fought tooth and nail to get rid of that school. There was like allegations of abuse, which I, I kind of remember some things happening, but not clear enough to really say. But she fought, fought, fought to get her like in a regular school, got her into girl guides and stuff. That, that was not really done before. So I, you know, look back at this timid lady and I'm like, oh, she was actually a bit of a fighter, you know? Father, typical 80s businessman. He had to knot the size of his head in his tie. And like you said, nuclear family, like the dad would be at work, would come home. 
I was always cutting the grass and pulling crabgrass for some reason all the time. I'm like, isn't there a spray for this stuff? <laughs> right. I'm pr- I, I see everybody else in the block doing the spray. He's like, nope, do it that way. And I'm like, all right, is this a cheap thing or uh, wax on, wax on? You're teaching me something. Well, I never really got anything out of it except for like dirty fingernails. So he was the enforcer. Yeah, good dad. Good, and, good guy. But built the work ethic. Yeah, very much so. I'm pretty sure that came from uh, his upbringing as well. So I thank him for that. And then I uh, got a younger sister. I was a typical older brother. I was a, I was an idiot to her. Her high school years were pretty difficult because she'd, she'd walk in a classroom the first day and go, oh, Tazarski, huh? Oh, this is how it's going to be. She's like, no, 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 no. Not like that dude, right? That's a family. Were you athletic or hobby focused at a young age? Well, because I moved around, and it's funny, you reflect on this stuff 20 years later, 10 years afterwards, right? Being in the fire service, everybody's like, team sports, team sports. Everybody wants to watch hockey, football. And I'm just not interested in that. Well, I never lived in a place really long enough to be part of a team. So I grew up doing BMXing, off-road cycling. Uh, skateboarding was a passion of mine, like forever and ever and ever. And kind of grew up in the days where, you know, just leave, come back when the streetlights turn on and we'll be good. And sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. But with the skateboarding, it taught me a lot about resiliency. And, you know, you fall down a lot in skateboarding. And I don't know if you've ever done any skateboarding, but like you get hurt pretty good. And this was before helmets and knee pads, or maybe I was just oblivious that they even existed. I was a street rider, right? I was what they call a thrasher. So I kind of didn't want to. uh, I didn't wear any of that stuff. Kind of taught you resiliency and just to keep on going. I was determined to be the first person in my area in Windsor to do a handrail slide. So we used to sneak out at night and literally skate all night long. There's no cars, it's cooler out. And then eventually nail that handrail slide after whacking my head off the pavement a bunch of times. So when I get my hair cut nice and short, you can see all the divots in my head and, you know, scars all over my back when I get a nice tan, you know? So. And you weren't thinking about all that back then, but now given what you're doing professionally, that idea of drilling and practicing the repetitiveness, the skill acquisition. Yeah. With my cycling still, I live downtown Toronto, so to drive a car, it's nuts, right? You can't park, you can't get anywhere. Like you look on Google Maps and it says you have a 20 minute drive here or a four minute bike ride. It's minus 40, I'm riding my bike. I had an incident where I took my helmet off, put it on my handlebar, the chin strap went into the front tire and it literally, I swear on my eyes, the whole bike flipped right over, right on Spadina Street, right downtown. I unclipped and landed on my feet. And there's a couple Australian tourists standing there. They're like, oh my God, I, a horrible accent, right? Yeah. But like, did that really happen? I'm like, did it really happen? Like I'm checking myself to make sure right. I'm not, you know, but like it becomes natural. You just, your body just does things without even thinking. So when you drill and you train, your body's going to naturally do that. And like, luckily enough, teaching forcible entry with the group of characters I've had the chance to travel around with, I haven't taught forcible entry in, I don't know, a little while. And I just went out East and did it. And it's just, boom, it all comes right back or on a fire scene. At, you know, everybody says three in the morning. Well, three in the afternoon is really bad for me if I don't get a nap, right? But, <laughs> you know, but your, your muscle memory just kicks in and you just hit, 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 hit. It's training and drilling and drilling. Even with falling, fell so much in my life, I just kind of know how to. You know? Yeah, I've recognized that after having slips and falls on fire scenes as well. Well, that would have been a lot worse. But mountain biking and snowboarding, it's a spatial awareness. Yeah, and that's why I kind of want my kids to follow the same path, even more so. Growing up in the suburbs of Windsor, there was a lot of driving around when you had to go somewhere. That being said, my parents didn't really cart me around to gymnastics or anything like that because I didn't do it. But, you know, my kids are already at three and six and we're not driving to school. We're walking. It's minus 20. You're walking. They're like, I don't want to walk. 
And I'm like, see that hospital over there? You point to sick kids, right? And he goes, there's rooms and rooms and rooms of children that wish nothing more to be able to walk to school and you have the privilege of doing it, right? So mm-hmm. enjoy that, realize that. I see my daughter gets it and my son may regurgitate it. I want to put that in their fiber and their cloth. That just that, That's who they're going to be. And then riding scooters and skateboards and the bikes, people look at my kids and go, they're two and they're already doing that? Like my daughter was already on a scooter ripping up College Street, Little Italy. And everybody's like, oh my God, that's amazing. And you know, I see her fall. And a lot of parents like scramble and lose their marbles. And I'm like, hurts, huh? And she's like, yeah, ha, 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 gets up and she's good, right? So I want to build that resiliency into them. Where do you fit in with the hierarchy of groups in school? I was on the eight-year plan, I believe. I think that was it. <laughs> with the hierarchy, it was funny. Like I hung around with all the different groups. Like there was the football players, the jocks, as they say, the the geeks, hung around with some of them, you know, the guys in the band. After high school, it's kind of like, kind of got along with everybody I just you know wasn't in a clique I wasn't in a group I was just like float around where's the party this weekend you know what's happening and then somebody said to me yeah like you guys were the partiers I didn't even really realize that that one existed right (laughs) you know I'm not proud of it but the truth be told my high school career was not that good I was like skating by at 51 percent and the guidance counselor was like well they either like you or don't want you in their class next year so there's your 51 percent but you know I'd go to school on Friday to see what was happening for the weekend and I eventually made it through, I realized like, hey man, life's going to come knocking. You better get this piece of paper or life's going to be pretty difficult. But that personality probably served you really well as an instructor and even being in the fire service, given that there's so many different characters and people dynamics are huge. Yeah. That's funny you say that. I'd never even really thought of that, but you're right. You know, you get a class of people. I just did a large trench course involving some of the, well, the biggest cities in our country. And, uh, very different personalities across the board. And you had to choose your words, uh, I wouldn't say carefully, but differently, depending on who you were talking to. Like you could see their perspective may be different than somebody else's. Try and read the room and explain it again, have them regurgitate it back. Yeah, when you're instructing, especially a group of like 30 people from many outside agencies, and these were not college students. These guys are professional, high-level rescuers. And you got to like step up to the plate and make them interested. And find common ground Yeah, in totally. some way. Yeah. Build trust and... Hundred percent, and that's the thing. Like, if you uh, abolish that trust with a classroom, you're done. Might as well just walk out, shut the door. Right. right. So you took CPR in school, and that kind of got used quickly after that. Yeah, it's funny. I took CPR course just to get out of class, just like used to give blood, just to get out of class for the afternoon. Took a CPR course, didn't think anything of it, didn't really realize is this important or whatever. Less than two weeks afterwards, I was at a party, and a friend was choking. That very audible strider that you hear when somebody's not doesn't have an adequate airway right and everybody thought he was joking and i kind of turned and look nothing training other than what i had and i'm like whoa this guy's choking and he was like turning blue so i ran through the banister where he was downstairs and gave him the heimlich maneuver and all came out and i was just like well okay i guess i was glad i learned that (laughs) i knew nothing about that that also served me as well my father choked probably about a year or so something after that in the middle of the night and it was almost that same stertorous you know he had a cold and he had an upper airway obstruction and heard my mom yelling and I was just like, you don't know what's going on, right? When you get woken up a dead sleep and just boom, kind of reacted. Yeah. And then I did co-op in high school with the ambulance just to get out of class as well. Before co-op was kind of a thing. Now it's a thing. And I think it's amazing that guys are going to actually get, look, how do you get experience? I want somebody who's experienced to work here, but now they're giving you the experience. What happened with my co-op placement was they put us on the ambulance and then one of the students saw a really bad accident and they said, whoop, we're pulling them all. That's what happened with our department. Yeah. So then I ended up doing something for this patient transfer service, some, uh, some guy and just whatever, it was garbage. So that was the end of that chapter. Yeah. That's a real loss. I think a eh? bubble wrapping 
kids like you talk about building resiliency like i think of the things that i did when i did co-ops or ride outs and the things i saw and so you did the ride outs yeah yeah, yeah or even when i did my emt in the states you know I, you did ride outs for that yeah and when you're in school for uh, paramedic up here same thing right yeah Doing hours there so yeah for sure and i've i heard of people that have done it up like in ontario it's like a two-year course like it blows my mind anyways people go through a two-year course and then they do their first week's work they get lucky enough to get hired <laughs> and they're like eh, it's not for me how'd you not know that right did you not see anything like I, I think there's six months they have to ride out non-stop and it's like you didn't get exposed to anything in six months i don't know but maybe it's a college system right they just push people through like i taught at colleges and there was students who were issues and they're like oh they're paying to be here so don't say anything and give them a c plus yeah it's when, just stuffing an envelope full of money yeah when they deserve a z minus right so right yeah, whatever <laughs> what was your work experience like before you got on the fire service I always worked, like I said, with uh, the work ethic my dad kind of put into me. I always worked. I always had like two jobs, you know, shovel driveways, cut grass for the neighbors. Uh, in high school, I was a dish pig for one of the restaurants there, which was a ton of fun. Like all of my friends just got jobs there. And that was our Saturday night was washing dishes until 2.30 in the morning. And then the beer was on ice and you go out and have some fun, right? Smelling like dirty, dirty dishes. <laughs> It's actually funny there. The boss wanted to promote me to dishroom supervisor. And I thought he was joking. I was like, get out of here. It was like a really big popular restaurant in Windsor. I was like, there's no such thing as a dishroom supervisor. It's like, <laughs> I'll give you a quarter of an hour more. I was like, for real? Yeah. And you make the schedules. I was like, oh, well, this kind of works out. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dishroom supervisor, man. Talk about reaching for the stars. Uh, I worked at a gas station in a bad area of Windsor, which is uh, interesting. You know, uh, at mm-hmm. the start of the month, for some reason, the lineups are uh, all the way out the door because everybody's getting their cartons of cigarettes and filling up their tanks and then by like the 20th day of the month when the checks have run out everybody's getting like two dollars in gas you know and pennies oh man that was a horrible place to work and like the coldest days of the year people would just like the cars would be lining up and like really the coldest day that you're gonna come in here bother me for three dollars like it's full serve yeah and probably four times in that time they would come another three dollars another three dollars i'm like you some financial genius like is this is this this how you get rich by only spending three dollars on gas at a time oh made me nuts and then uh i ended up working for that same restaurant i was a kitchen bubba like did catering which was a lot better than being in the restaurant you're just getting slammed with dishes all at once uh you started flying after you graduated yeah so i graduated high school on a friday never been in an airplane in my life my parents didn't travel and if we did it was like driving to florida in a car but yeah, I graduated on a Friday and uh, my original career path was I wanted to be a commercial pilot. I was actually going for helicopter first. And then the requirements for that were like, well, you had to be a fixed wing pilot first. So yeah, I started flying on the Monday after my graduation. And it was funny, I had this super old, old as dirt flight instructor. And we went out the first day. He's like, okay, this is how you steer. I'm like, oh, you steer with your feet, not your hands. Well, yeah, on the ground. But when we get up, do this. So my very, very first flight, he had me roll down the runway, full speed, take off. And I'm like, I'm flying this thing. He's like, well, my hands are right near it. So we're not going to crash. This is how this guy taught me right off the bat. This is how this works. This is how this works. Now let's give it a shot. And it was pretty empowering. And like, you know, for flying, like I loved it. It was like this community. Everybody waved at each other as they were taxiing in and out. And, um, you know, I was like, this is definitely the career for me. And did you like the complexity of it and the, the structure of it? Yeah, I did. And it was like, the thing was, I had good teachers, but I also, I don't know, I had some issues. You know, I'd be flying and there'd be like a mechanical issue with the aircraft. One time I was flying through to London, uh, St. Thomas actually, and all of my electrics gave out. So I was like, And you're on your own? I'm on my own. Yeah, by yourself. Rack up those hours, man. I spent that whole summer, started at seven in the morning, just flying until noon, until it got too hot. Because those things aren't air conditioned, right? And then in the summer, all the hot fields make it bounce around everything. So 
flying to St. Thomas. I'm like, I got no electrics. I got no radio, nothing. That's where they teach you to buzz the tower and then they shoot this laser at you. They probably find in the back closet and they're like, okay, solid green light, go ahead and land. Did that. I was, I was good with it, right? And my instructor would give me challenges. Okay, they, they basically put you in this hood where they disorientate you and put the airplane at an attitude that's not safe. And then they go, okay, without looking out the window, figure out what you're doing and how to fix it. You know, that's instrument flying. And uh, I had a couple other incidents where I had a gyro failure. You know, the false horizon you see with the brown and the blue thing that's supposed to be level. Well, I was a taxiing for takeoff and all of a sudden everything just went sideways. I'm like, well, I'm not sideways. I'm on the ground. So they're like, well, just follow your floating compass. I was like, okay, what happens? Turbulence, bad weather. Now I'm like, really? Really? So... Yeah, with flying, I ended up going out to BC, Prince George, paper mills. It's funny, they have a paper mill right at the very end of their runway. So when you're taking off, you're flying through the smokestacks. It's like, could one of you two not put this here, <laughs> right? Like, I know the airport, it's wind dependent. So this probably had to be a thing. Yeah, and then I just had a few more incidents there, like weather incidents, mechanical issues. Went back to Windsor. I was flying with my instructor to do more for my commercial license. And he said, yeah, yeah um, you're a white knuckle pilot. You, you can't do this anymore. So many things kept on happening to me that it was like, it's not going to be easy if you do this career. And I was like, okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> There's a great t-shirt with the attitude gyroscope and it's upside down and nose down. Yeah. And it says bad attitude. Bad attitude. Yeah, that's right. right? <laughs> like I was so into all that stuff, man. Like altimeter as a clock and everything. And I was just so into it. And then it's just like, you know, you fly in Windsor and then you, you get a job out West and the maps are drastically different because there's mountains that are 10,000 feet and like, if you lose visual with the ground in a cloud, they say your average lifespan is in like 42 seconds if you don't know what's going on in the instruments. And it was just like, as a new pilot, it was, you know, it's for some people. I thought it was for me and it just kind of didn't turn out to be for me. It's funny you've mentioned it. Initially, that was my path too. I was trying for that. I mean, maybe there's something about that. Why didn't you do it? I had a couple instructors I wasn't too keen on. They didn't really support you and yeah. and let you know that you could do this. It was a lot more of all the reasons you won't be able to pass. Really? Yeah, just poor instruction, right? I think I got swayed. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Like, I would learn from a pilot that's older than dirt, and then I would go to a younger pilot that's like, it's funny, you get 200 hours, and then you become an instructor. So at your very, very lowest level of being a professional pilot, now you're teaching other people how to fly. So I had one guy, I did a short takeoff and landing, where the, the older guy taught me, like, okay, when you get past the trees, dive towards the runway. I did that, and the new guy was like, oh, my God, you're trying to kill us all? I'm like, uh, no, I'm just landing this thing. And how do you see now with training the trainers? You know, you have guys with no real experience in our service, and yeah, next thing you know, they're teaching. It is funny because you see people say, oh, I want to learn about medical, so I'm going to become an instructor. And it's kind of like, you know, I give them a lot of credit for doing that because, you know, they're putting their neck out there because they want to learn. But now I just learned, and now I have to pass it on. And so I think it's up to those of us that have a clinical background to mentor that. And if the train division won't do it, then somebody else should be sitting in that's a clinically active medic or an ex-medic and say, word it this way, or at least show them first. I used to be a medical instructor for our department. You teach it and then you see them using the same terms and the same terminology. And it's good. It's like, okay, good. This guy is following the lead. Yeah, that's exactly what train the trainer is. And unfortunately, you can't train departments some departments have 800 500 2000 personnel you can't train everyone by the professional so train the trainers you're kind of stuck with it as long as you train enough trainers you train one guy to train all the train the trainers then you just diluted it and if only one guy has one perspective he's going to miss a whole bunch of stuff 
did flying in VFR, IFR, and trusting your instruments sometimes, trusting what you see outside the window or feel the position of the plane, does that help now? Do you trust what you see with the patient? Do you trust your equipment? Yeah, you kind of have to put it all together. VFR is easy. That's visual flight rules, right? You go on a nice day and you just look out the window. Instrument, you start doing IFR, you have to trust your instruments. You have to. And I remember there was times where I felt like the aircraft was going sideways or tilting. And I'm like, nope, it's not. Because I got an airspeed indicator saying this, my horizon saying this, and uh, you know my vertical distance up and down is saying I'm flying straight and level, even though my head is saying we're turning. You do have to trust that. And then as a medic, you can be seeing things, but if your monitor says they have a heart rate of 80, they're fine. They're not bleeding to death. Well, are they on beta blockers? Is there something stopping their heart rate from getting to 160 to try and compensate? You can't just take one part of the puzzle and you go, that's it. Meanwhile, their abdomen's getting distended, right? You must have an interesting take then on the recent 737 crashes and that piece of tech that because of the positions of the engines on that new design of the plane, puts out the center of gravity, it tends to go nose up. So they put some piece of software in there that tends makes, to it, like, go down. makes it go down. And then there was a fight between the pilot and the, the computer, right? And the computer won. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, I've been lucky enough. I'm just a part-timer on the air ambulance, and I've been involved in four incidents. Let's say forced landings kind of thing, you know. Wow. <laughs> and other guys have been there for like 30 years, like, I've never had any of that happen to me. Like, oh, good. <laughs> so I guess uh, the old guys were right. Maybe I shouldn't be flying. Are you a shit magnet of fire, too? Uh, Yeah, I'm. but, you know, the thing is, it can be a shit magnet, but, I mean, when you work at a busier hall, you're going to be. As a new recruit, I got put at a slow station. Obviously, don't like that. And uh, I got... Brought into a busier station, the busiest pump in our city. Our shift, for some reason, we've had over the years, we just get the big calls. We get the big booms, the big explosions. And lucky enough, I've been to a lot of them. Lucky or not lucky, who knows? How many people have been to an Airbus crash? Well, you embrace it. You don't want bad things to happen to good people, but if it does, you want to be there. 100%. Yeah, totally. That's what some people don't understand. Like we say, oh man, we had this really good call. And it's like, oh, but if... uh firefighter or paramedic says we had a bad call it's like sit down eye contact what's up right right yeah just with a simple phrase yeah totally talk to me about the uh, beer truck deliveries oh yeah yeah i sent you the article from uh kegs and cases i don't know if brewers retail still has that but yeah so when i stopped flying i'm like okay now what am i gonna do with my life here right you feel like an absolute failure you don't want to tell people you meet girls like yeah i was going to be a pilot, but now I'm too afraid. And now I work at the beer store, which, you know, everybody said, oh, it's a good job. And I'm like, it's not for me. But it was funny, like talking about being a shit magnet. That article I emailed you, this stuff really happened to me. I was delivering beer and a lady got hit by a car 10 feet from me. And she was not like tapped. She was hit hard. Another one, there was a kid sitting in a car at a restaurant. The mom ran in to grab something and the kid put it in reverse and the car starts going in reverse in a circle on a main street in Windsor and everybody's just looking at it. And it's funny. There's that phenomena when there's more people around, less people will do something. I ended up running in the middle of the car where it was going in reverse and jumped in the driver's window and slammed it into park right before it hit a house. And I remember I hit it in park and I got slammed hard right against the post and everything. And I was like, Oh, okay, whatever. And then went back to delivering my beer. Right. <laughs> never, never thought of it. And then somebody right. came to the, the foreman at the brewer's retail and said, Hey, you kind of jumped in a car that was out of control. Yeah, I had another guy choking one time. At the Army Navy Club, and a guy runs out, hey, this guy's choking. So I went in again, did the Heimlich. So it's funny, when I talk to people about learning CPR and, you know, Heimlich maneuver, like, I've done it three times out of uniform. I've never done it in uniform. By the time we get there, they are unconscious. 
for the public to know CPR on a high If somebody's doing CPR on somebody when we go on a run, I make sure and tell them, look, man, like you stepped up. You did a great job. I've seen too many crews like, oh, get out of the way. You don't know what you're doing. Well, they did something. I'm really grateful for the people that step up and do that. And that's always been a natural thing in you. You see a problem, especially with a car. You very quickly have to think, okay, there's only one solution to this. And you just act. I don't know where that one came from. The Heimlich Maneuver stuff, that's just, okay, I just learned this and I can help. But the car thing, it was really, I was I remember looking around. I can remember this just like it happened yesterday. And everybody was on the sidewalk kind of just looking. And everybody in the parking lot started walking towards the car, but nobody was doing anything. Able-bodied people. It's not like there was, it was all people in walkers. It's, I don't know why, but just did. And then it didn't rattle me at all. Like I said, I literally went back to finish the delivery. Looking back on your skating days and that too, you think it's that risk-taking behavior or spatial awareness. I know I can get in the middle of where the car is driving around safely and stand there. And then I know I can make the window. Yeah, you learn how to be safe with skateboarding when you uh, start doing downhills. We used to find the steepest hill we could in London and like try and push each other off the skateboards when we're going fast. So, like you're really talking about spatial awareness, man. Like right. <laughs> you know when you get pushed off your skateboard and you're running so fast your shoes go flying off behind you. Right. That happened a few times. Yeah. When did you first become a medic? Yeah, so the um, aviation career tanked on me, and it was it took me a while to actually realize it tanked, and it took my parents even longer because they just spent like fifty thousand dollars of putting me through in it. So all these things that happened in the past, somebody just said, "Oh, why don't you be a paramedic?" And I'm like, "Oh, okay, yeah." I co-opted that in high school, not really on my radar. So uh, I went to the. It was funny at the mall; they had the. EMS information session. And I walked up to the teacher for the college and I said, Hey, you know, I, I'm interested in this. What can I do? And he said, don't, don't even bother. There's no jobs. And I'm thinking like, <laughs> I'm like, why are you even here then giving information? I don't get it. So then I ran into somebody that uh, knew somebody in the States and they said, Oh yeah, they'll take you in the EMT course there. And I was like, Oh, emergency medical technician. Eh, okay. I'll give that a shot. Maybe it'll point me in a direction. I'm not doing anything right now anyways. So uh, I went to EMT school, uh, Henry Ford Community College in Dearborn, Michigan. I just loved it. I couldn't get enough information. It's not a super high level pathophysiology thing for your EMT basic, but I just I wanted to learn more. I wanted to learn more. And then when it came time to do your rideouts, you know, there's a lot of people in my class who are like, yeah, I want to do this suburb or this suburb. I hear they sleep all night there. And I'm like, I want to be in the D, man. I want to be in, right in the middle of the 313. Put me down right in the center. And it was amazing. I had so much fun. It's a hardworking city and it's a lot of people down on their luck. And especially back then, I think it was 94, 93, something like that. It was a busy, busy place. And I just thrived off it. I remember the first time getting in the rig, sitting in the back, looking out the window, seeing the red lights flash off the reflection. I'm like, man, this is happening. This is me. Yeah. And my very, (laughs) very first call in, in Detroit was, uh, the very top of the Renaissance Center, the building in the middle of the skyline. It was the very top. And I was like, oh man, they were like, oh, it's probably going to be a celebrity or something. And it was like, no, it's just a waitress with an asthma attack. But it was like, it's good. Your first call is that. It's like, man, is this a sign? It wasn't a BS call. And the other good thing about Detroit, it's like the lower priority calls are usually pushed off to the private sector ambulances. So we ran a lot of shootings, a lot of stabbings. I think it was like over a year was there before I actually saw cardiac arrest because someone's ticker gave out. It was an interesting city, but I met so many good people there. I, lo- I just I loved it. When I get a whiff of uh, a certain type of diesel fume from a Ford truck driving by, it just I go right back to Woodward Avenue, right in the middle of that city, right? Just flash right back in. <laughs> Love it. Well, how was the transition then from working as a medic in the States to working here? There was visa issues. When you go to school there, they give you a visa. Transitioning over here, I was challenging the test. So with my EMT basic because I did really well in my rideouts. They said, well, like 
if we hire you on, will you work nights? And I'm like, of course I will. Like, that's what I do. Right. And they're like, okay, here's our entrance exam for the paramedic Academy. I'm like, whoa, zero to hero. Here we go. (laughs) Here we go. So did the paramedic Academy, boom, more exposure, more medications, more drugs, more experience riding out. And then I go to challenge the Canadian or the Ontario, whatever it is, not to be too specific, but you know, I would go in there and write a test and I'd pass it and they go, okay, now you need another test. And I'm like, okay, well, I've done all this. This is all my didn'tic, my school learning. Here's it. Like it, it mirrors this, the national competency standards. It's like, okay, well, you need to do this test. You need to do this test. Finally, I got to a point where I was in an interview and they're throwing pieces of equipment. They didn't even tell me what they were. And I figured it out. I'm like, oh, this is a ventilator. You put this on the patient like this. They're like, well, we don't know if you, you know, if you're qualified to work here. I'm like, what well, is the heart on the right side over here? Like, what is the big difference? like a skateboarder man they kept on knocking me down yeah charge him another 200 bucks give him another test and there wasn't a process for it at that time and eventually i i got it they're just like i don't know if they just gave up they didn't want to hear from me anymore or what but finally they said fine you can write the exam yeah at widow last out play yeah okay <laughs> exactly so, so i guess you've got a bit of an insight then into you know what it's like to immigrate into canada and you know come over here as a doctor engineer architect and then you're told you can't use any of your training. You can't use it. It's like, this is the human body. This is pathophysiology. I don't get it. I understand there's a regulatory body. There's licensing. And now, from what I understand, the paramedic thing, okay, if, if you can tick off these standards, you can write our test. Of which, that test, by the way, is ridiculous. Multiple, multiple choice answers. I'm like, uh, if I see this heart rhythm, I'm going to treat it like this. It's, it's so silly. But yeah, like I feel bad for people in other countries that, you know, refugees that have come here. Amazing skill set can't utilize it and we're missing out on having them help us with that of course there's small communities that can't get them to staff it and we're just like basically just throwing that away and now they're might be driving an uber in downtown toronto whereas they might embrace going north right being a doctor for a small community totally where it's needed what was your first exposure to the fire service uh so again with that visa thing they're like okay well you can go to medic school that extends your visa okay cool well your visa is gonna run out so do you want to go in the fire academy and i'm like uh I'm not, not really interested in that. Maybe 10, 15 years down the road, I might want to do that. I'm like, I'm not really interested. So finally, somebody kind of pressed me into doing it. I was with a bunch of guys. It was funny. Like in the U.S., you go to a fire academy and everybody in there has been in the military. And I'm just like some guy from the suburbs of Windsor, right? We're doing PT after class, doing the marching. And they all know those those cadence songs, right? Like, I was with your mama last night. And I, I don't know any of this. All these guys know all this stuff, right? Like, so it was, and it was very... Very military, you know, at the start of the day, I remember lining up, checking, make sure you had a pen. And I remember snapping a pencil in half because my the guy standing beside me didn't have a pencil. I snapped it in half and gave him the one half and I put mine in so you could see it in the pocket. Nice. Like, like just like that roll call thing. But it was funny, like, I think it was like the second or third day trying to push around a stupid pylon in a parking lot with a two and a half inch line. I was like, physically, this is incredible. And I just, something clicked to me. I was like, man, I love this. I, this is amazing. And I got to get taught by some of the best instructors in the Detroit area. I faced a lot of my fears when they did fires. It wasn't a concrete prop. It was a house. All right, this is a house. We're going to set it on fire. They didn't have little smoldering pots. They set this thing on fire. And it behaves like a house. It behaved like a house. And I remember a couple of people coming out like crying, literally. And I remember getting lost in one of them. Like, this is a real fire. Getting lost in one of them. And when the smoke cleared, I made my way out. Smoke cleared. I was actually in a freezer that had turned sideways that the top was taken off it so a little kid wouldn't go in it. But I was in this freezer going like, where am I? Right? And I could see my handprints going around the inside of the freezer. So that was really good. And, you know, being with some of those instructors, uh, one of our first repels was the Pontiac Silverdome, which is now gone. 
I'm not a huge fan of heights, funny enough. Sitting in an airplane is different than being on the edge of a walkway. And I remember this one instructor, Jeff Nye, Pontiac Fire. He retired out of Pontiac when Pontiac Fire got made non-existent. I loved hanging out with this guy. And he just looked at me and said, you let fear beat you here? Fear is going to beat you the rest of your life. I mean, you just said the right word at the right moment. And this is a guy that I truly trust, right? This is a guy that tough as nails, dude, right? So I did it. And then I ended up doing it four times that day. And then we went out and had beers. And then we had beers like almost every other day after that. So <laughs> that, that was the academy for me. It was like, you know, whenever you do these classes, there's always a couple guys or girls that always come out and do the beer thing. And it's funny, those guys just always seem to be the ones that do the best. So it seems like you're very much when you see something that's a challenge that you may feel is a hole in your game or a weakness or, or just something you haven't been exposed to, you're very much drawn to that. Yeah. Do you like being the rookie? Yeah, I didn't mind it. For my rideouts in Michigan, I took a placement in a city called Highland Park, which is like right in the bullseye center of Detroit. Used to be big, used to be a very rich area. It's where the Packard plant is and everything down there. It's, um, I took it there and one of the guys in my academy was a police officer there. Talk about learning. You would literally drive by fires to go to fires. If anybody's ever heard of Devil's Night, it's like supposed to be the night before Halloween. Well, at that time in Detroit, they had the angels out. So they had these people with these yellow lights driving around going, hey, don't start fire. So they just said, okay, we'll just burn the whole week before. So you're literally like seventh on an engine company. I'm sitting on the doghouse with the irons in my hand going like, I'm not used to this. This is crazy. And they would put me first in on the pipe. Okay, you're dragging it in, right? And it was like, these are some of the guys that I was in recruit class. It used to be cops, you know, just running in. And you're first in on a, the houses in Detroit, the beaten down, dilapidated houses are mansions. Like this used to be the richest city in the country. And mm. you're stretching into this massive, massive house, flames rolling, those big wooden beams. Unlike, you know, these days they put houses up with a staple gun, right? You know, that week too, I stepped on a hot roof. I didn't realize, but one of the wires had gone down and went through the eaves troughs. And I ended up stepping my heel on one of those and I felt a tingling in my legs. And I was like, whoa, okay. I mean, you might not want to step there. I think that's hot. I'm like, okay, okay. I'm not going to step on that's that. That's an experience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no kidding. <laughs> I just felt a tingling and I was like, okay, I'll get back on the ladder. I had so much fun doing that. What's your perspective on cowboy mentality and safety first for the firefighter? Where do you sit on that? Oh, man. This that is might not, be a hard question. This may not be a politically correct answer. I'm but, not looking for a politically correct answer. <laughs> man. Because I know they give us safety gear, so we'll wear it. If I'm doing a forced entry class, I got rules. You better have a helmet, safety glasses, and gloves on. Because I'm telling you, that's what's going to hurt. But some safety rules go, oh, full bunker gear. It's like August. These guys are dying. When it comes to structural firefighting with smoke showing, like, come on. It's like having an active shooter in a school and a cop with a gun and a vest waiting outside. You've got the equipment to go in there and stop this. For us, this house is on fire. Our time to get in there and put this thing out is so much shorter than it was 30 years ago with all the glues. And like I said, they put these things together with a staple gun, gusset plates. And if we think somebody's in there, you've got a suit on, you've got breathing apparatus, you've got your face piece protecting your helmet, gets hot, put your shield down. I'm not saying go in and kill yourself, but make the push. That's what we're there for. I've framed it this way with people. If you're driving back home today and you see some smoke coming from a house and you pull up and something's going on. You don't have anything. No. You're probably going to walk up and try and see if you can open the door. Try the and door, take a peek in. Take a look. And, and if you know you could make a room and sweep it and come back out, you probably are going to do that yeah. with, with nothing on. So then you dress in full firefighting PPE and you think you can't, like you're a freaking superhero most of the time. Yeah. In oh, most yeah. situations. Yeah. Like I felt it. I've got my shoulders burn and stuff like that and like, you know, melt the front of your helmet. But the people inside don't have any of that. And the biggest thing is that we have is water, right? When we get there, man, like 
throw water. This mentality of like, when I got hired in Canada, I was like, what are they talking about? Go down the stairs and search around the fire because you don't want to steam them. I don't understand this. Shouldn't we be flowing water? And I remember learning that in the can in Detroit. And I brought it here and one of the training officers was saying, no, that's horse cock and we don't do that. Oh, no, no, you can't do that. You'll, you'll kill everybody. And I'm like, but I'm trying to put this out. And that mentality stuck here for so long. It still exists. Once I became a toy captain acting or whatever you want to call it, I had a little bit more influence of to this is what we're doing. Like when I worked on the rescue, we didn't even have water, you know, so I would just steal somebody else's line and do it. But I mean, we would open up the bale and just go, 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 go. Because luckily enough, the group that I run with get exposed to engine company operations, even if they're not doing it here on my department or neighboring department, but to know to flow water. And that's the thing. It's so nice to see that guys are understanding that hey man, um, it's okay to get that one piece of drywall wet because guess what? They're replacing it anyway. Service master or whoever is going to come in here and rip all this stuff out and they're going to replace it all. But I can't replace you or your crew or whoever may or may not be in that house. Like, Give them a chance, man. I'll always make the push. I don't you know. When I get on scene, my thing is, even if I'm the sixth truck, squad one moving up. That's what we're doing. I'm not waiting. I'm not staging level one. I'm going. And the chiefs see that. If you're out of sight, you're out of mind. Yeah. Oh, no, I'll so. always walk right past the DC vehicle and point at my helmet plaque. Not that I need to because they know who I am, but I'll point at this. We're here. We're ready to be assigned. We always get assigned. You got to build up a trust with your chiefs and you can't let them down once. You can't have a bad day. If you have a day where you're just like not there and it turns out to be a worker on the 13th floor and you just sat in your rig, now you've lost all that trust. And now, oh, maybe you guys aren't there all the time. The good thing is my crew has never looked at me and said, mm, nah, I think we should wait. And I give them the power to tell me things, and they don't. We were at a fire recently, and you know we were one of the last trucks in, and we just walked up the stairs, and I turned around and looked at them. They're just like carrying the hose, carrying the irons, carrying the hook. Nobody's even saying, like, well, they said there's nothing showing. Well, there was something, and that's happened a couple times. That's kind of the trust that I want all the district chiefs in my area, or even my fellow coworkers, to know that, hey, I got your back. We got a hall just uh, south of us, and they're a heavy-hitting fire team, man, and they know... They're always racing us. We're always racing them. But you know what? I know that they've got my back and I know they know that we've got theirs. And it's really comforting to run with those crews that you know. The crews around us, usually the busier crews are in the city centers and we have all good crews there. And you measure this aggressiveness. Obviously, it's tempered. I just think about that experience you had crawling into that freezer and not even knowing where you were and then coming out and realizing, oh my God, that's what I was inside. And then we're obviously all aware of, you know, the Worcester fire and, yep. you know, the guys getting lost in the walk-in freezers. So it's not like you're blindly running in without thought. It's educated. It's it's knowledgeable yeah. aggressiveness. At least now we have the thermal imaging camera, which I try and really refresh with every morning, zero, 700 hours. I don't go have a coffee. I don't make eggs. I ding the pole, which makes the other shifts crazy. Say, hey, you know, T-Bone's in. I'm going to be checking in my stuff. And when I check in the the tick, I check it in. I make sure everything's going. I do in the pattern that I would if I'm doing a search in a room. I put my hand on the wall, make sure I have a thermal difference. Check and make sure the laser sight, everything, everything in it, make sure it works. And then the air, that's not my air. That's my daughter's and son's air, right? That's the way I look at it. Like you said, we're making a uh, very calculated risk, but I'm not on far one side of let's go into a burning building and go through a floor. I'm also not on the side of hit it hard from the yard. I do what you got to do. Right. You've got a good balance there. Yeah. What was the journey to getting hired like? Uh, so the journey to getting hired was, uh, I thought, going to be easy. 
I'll admit I was a, a little bit cocky. I was like, oh man, because I took my resume to a couple of the fire departments in Windsor and said, hey, this this is what I got, and I showed them the list of all the things that I I had these pieces of paper, which. 20 years now, I'm like, I couldn't care less about paper, right? But they're like, oh, you're going to get hired on as a captain joking around, right? And I'm like, oh, I got a shot here. This is good. Put in my application. I'm hearing other guys going, yeah, we're writing the exam next week. Aren't you coming? I'm like, uh, I didn't get a letter. And I was like, what happened here? So I went to City Hall and said, like, what happened here? Human resources. Like, well, oh, this. Oh, you didn't have CPR. And I'm like, I'm an EMT paramedic. I have all that stuff. Yeah, but you need CPR. And I'm like, I have it. But on the application, their fault or mine, right? I didn't put CPR. I said EMT paramedic, state of Michigan. Right, but box not ticked equals don't yeah. have it. My interpretation of the question was, what's your highest level of training? And then there was like, do you have Wemis? was the other one. And they trained me to hazmat technician. Yeah, I put hazmat technician. Yeah, but you need Wemis. <laughs> this is for rail cars, not for a can of WD-40. So you had some insight into the bureaucracy yeah, so I was like, oh man, here we go. So it was when one door shuts, another one opens, uh, or you can make it open, I guess. So I just started applying everywhere. And I was just like working all the money I would make delivering beer or whatever would go right to paying for another exam. I applied all over the province. And the good thing was, like, we'd write that silly exam, but I would see familiar people, you know, be sitting in this auditorium with what was there, two, 3,000 people at that time. And I'd see some people walking out and I'd be like, I recognize you from the last test. I recognize you from the last test. Let's go out. We'll grab a bite to eat. We're going to write down all these questions. We're going to get this because this is farcical. How do I write for one department and pass and the other one write it the exact same way and fail? Let's figure out this together. So we did. And out of that group, there's probably 12 of us, 11 of us got hired. And the one guy that didn't was the guy that always took information and never gave it. So I don't know if that's a karma thing. But uh, that was the journey to getting hired. And I remember like it came down to a point where they say when it rains, it pours. So I finally challenged my Ontario Provincial Paramedic License, got it, got hired by Windsor EMS. Then I get shortlisted for like four departments all at once. I'm like, whoa, okay, this kind of happened. It was a year of climbing uphill battles. And all of a sudden, boom. So what do you choose? And I wanted to choose a large urban center. And I talked to other people and they said, your department is one of the most progressive in the country. You should choose this. And I was like, Okay, I don't know anything about anything, but I'll do this. And uh, super happy I chose it. I like being in a big city. I like the uh, lateral opportunities that you have. You want to do other things, right, as you can attest to as well. Not to say a smaller department isn't as good, but I don't know. I, you know, I just like being in the center of a whole bunch of high-rises and then being on a 20-lane highway. And I tell the guys I work with from New York, it's like, yeah, my first due was a 20-lane highway, busiest stretch of highway in North America. They're like, 20 lanes, bro. You like They don't believe it. And you show them on Google Maps. They're like, oh my God, they don't believe it. So what's your perspective then trying to get your certifications and experience seen from the States to Canada? And then your perspective on, you know, writing for one fire department and then, you know, passing and writing the same test in that department not. So what are your thoughts on standardizing? So a country like New Zealand, right? If you want to go from Auckland and just swap with someone in Wellington, you just switch. You've traveled around and taught with a lot of departments. What are your thoughts on standardizing province-wide, Canada-wide? Is there pros, cons to that? What I truly like is the fact that my fire certifications from Michigan transferred over here, no problem. And to this day, right, people are like, oh, I took a course in Texas. Everybody knows Texas, right? That made me feel, especially after the whole paramedic thing of like, nah, it's not good enough. I'm like, it's the same human body, right? So the transferring of the fire stuff was, it was very refreshing. The human resources was like, oh yeah, we know what all that stuff is. It was like perfect. As for either regionalization or the whole country, like 
I think it kind of makes sense, but it's a tough question because we got away from NFPA standards to get a provincial standard, but the standard already exists, right? Why are we changing? Why are we reinventing the wheel? And I'm heavily into trench rescue. That's kind of my thing. And for some reason, our province changes type level of soil to type one, two, three, four, when everything else in the world is type A, B, C, C60, C90. And all of our charts for all of our struts that we use are C60. But now we've got to somehow translate it. Why did somebody want to create a job for somebody and just go, I got a good idea. Change C to three and we'll give you $120,000 a year. Thanks. <laughs> it's farcical. I don't get this. And it just, I bang my head against the wall because I have to teach this provincial standard. But then I also have to say, this is what it means on this chart here. This is what you're looking at. So in your test, understand what this soil is, but you also need to understand your charts you're looking at that are written in a different language. If everybody just kind of followed NFPA globally, I think we'd be better off. Yeah, and it's a common thing in the service to say when you're speaking about a certain topic, a skill, especially fire tactics, you know, take what you can away from this, apply it to where you work, your buildings may be different. I understand country to country or state to state, province to province, there may be some differences here and there. Yeah. But the science is science, physics is physics, fires burn the way they burn. But it seems to me it's frustrating that if I'm working in Brampton and I want to apply to Mississauga, I have to start all over again and learn the Mississauga way. Yeah. When geographically we're, we're basically the same. There's yeah. no difference. Well, and the thing is a large urban center, you have high rise, but you've also got residential and commercial. And we're mutual aid. We will come down all of a sudden we're working with you. Yeah. But if I wanted to apply to work as a Mississauga firefighter, I had to start all over again from the very bottom up. Welcome to cleaning the shitters, bro. Right, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, there right. you go. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, on that end of things, you'd happily do. Whatever it is, you'd want to be seen as a rookie in a brand new department. I could care less. But the idea that you can't just transfer to a department that's right next door to you. In that aspect, I would agree. You know, maybe my last five years, I want to go work in some Pumpkins Corners department. But I don't think so. <laughs> right? Because... You know, when you work at the slow halls, you know, through the promotional process, which a lot of people go through, I got put at a, a couple slow halls. And when those tones go off, you feel it more. But when you're getting slaughtered for 24 hours straight, yeah, all right, this is what we do. Here we go. Yeah, let's go. Slide down the pole. Let's, uh, let's go do another one. Could be real. Could be not. But expect fire, right? Always. When did you first get involved with special teams? When I was a rookie, they put me at a really slow station. And then... District chief, I don't know, maybe thought I was a good worker, brought me to headquarters, station one. It's the busiest pumper in the city. It runs. You put your lunch on the truck and you just go. See ya whenever. I did that for a while. And one of the training officers that taught my recruit class was on the special operations team. So the hazmat, rope, confined space, all that stuff. And he said, you know, I remember you in recruit class saying you really like doing this stuff. And I said, yeah, like I kind of have an exposure to it from Michigan. I'm interested in it. I'm happy to do the extra work. So they kind of recruited me for the special ops team, but the chief at my station didn't want me to go there. So they just switched me when he was on vacation. Probably not the best thing to do, but best thing for me. It was a lot of extra training. When you get hired as a recruit, all of them, yep, I'm going to give 100% for the next 30 years. But if you get on a special operations team, you have no choice but to do that. You have to do all this extra work and do it just for the passion of it because there's no extra money. No money. And you know what? I've talked to guys in departments where they gave extra money and it was the worst mistake they ever could have done. Really? Yeah. Well, now it's by seniority. Yeah. I want to be on, uh, I want to be on the specialty mm. team to make an extra 17%. Interesting. And then they get like humps in there. Right. Ugh. But like one of the things I just said to our recruit class, 
would your rookie that you were 20 years ago look at you today and be proud of who you are 20 years later, right? Did you live up to your standards of what you were back then? Are you just a city worker? There's a lot of people in between that really care, but just don't feel they need to do the extra work. But a lot of that sometimes is from upper management. Like you get beaten down so many times, you're just going to go, why? Why am I going to bash my head against the wall? But it takes usually guys that are special operations teams, they kind of stick with it, but they also kind of stick with it because they have to. I've said to other people, uh, when I went to special operations, I was like, okay, hazmat, it's complex. You know, you got to get into the books. You got to get into these special suits. Like we said about the medical, I, I applied to be an instructor. I had a good grasp on hazmat, but I was like, okay, I want to go to the next level. I want to go to the courses in Michigan. I want to do all this extra work. And then when you become a hazmat guy, like now you're a hazmat guy forever. They were talking about separating hazmat from the rest of our special operations, which in my opinion is a good idea. Other people may not agree with that, but you know, I wanted to reinvent myself and I'm like, okay, I like hazmat but I like heavy rigging and I like trench and these are my passions, mm -hmm. but, but you're the hazmat instructor and I'm like, got to shake it. Be the Ricky again. Yeah. Trying to reinvent myself and writing programs for rigging and rescue mm -hmm. and trench and stuff like that. And then boom, if somebody would say, yeah, Mike just used to do hazmat, they go, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Right. So if you can break free, you can reinvent and people then see you as that guy. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. And that's the thing. Like that's no easy task. No. Especially because a lot of people don't want to do hazmat. It's a lot of extra work. When you get a has call, We've sat there for days when we used to be on the old shift four days in a row. We had the biggest residential meth lab in the country. We sat on that for four days, putting the cops in our SCBAs, taking them for walks through in the basement, finding all the solvents and everything. Like it's a lot of work, man, for like nothing extra. And on the admin side of things, uh, or even from the DC, PC, making rosters, once they have you and you're trained and you're good, apart from the guys seeing you as, you know, you're the hazmat guy, they see you as the hazmat guy yeah, or tech rescue guy or whatever it is. And they've ticked that box and now they just leave you there. Yeah. See, that's a bad thing, but it's a good thing. So the way I look at it is like you talk to anybody that's in the promotional process. It's funny. You go to a course anywhere. You get a guy from New York city, a guy from Orlando, a guy from Seattle. They go, yeah, I wrote for acting captain or Lieutenant. And they put me at this slow hall and I can't stand it. Everybody's got the same problems. But if you're involved in special operations and you actually love special operations, you always gravitate back. And I've had to tell people that, like, the guys on my rig currently are such smart dudes. They're all switched on. They're all so engaged, like, lucky. And they all wrote for acting captain, right? And I'm just like, you have to do it. I mean, you don't have to have to. There are some people that just don't. But I'm like, you should. Because I ain't going to be here forever, right? My acting captain is not going to be here forever. There's got to be a succession plan. You have what it takes. You should do it. When I was on the rescue before, I didn't want to write it either because I had one of the best crews in the city. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to write it. And what happened is what everybody thinks happens. You get promoted. You go to a slow haul. And instead of rotting, Andrew Broussard and I wrote a machine rescue course. Right? I didn't just sit there and rot. Which now my station, they try and get me to write stuff. I'm like, uh, no. It's 6 p.m. and I'm 16 calls deep. I don't have time to write anything here. But don't put me in a slower haul. <laughs> right? I'll do it on my days off. Right. Right. But you have that, and I think that's common among the people that do that. You've got that internal motivation. Yeah. You're given a slow haul. You don't. You see it as an opportunity, and you take advantage of it. Yeah. And yeah. fill it with something, a value for you and for everyone else. Yeah. I don't know what causes the internal motivation. Is it ego? Is it insecurity? Is it like, I don't know what, what the trigger is for it, right? Or is it just you want to just do a good job? You want to get a pat on the head. Oh, you did a good job, right? Because everybody's getting paid the same. Right? Mm. You're getting paid the same to work in Pumpkins Corners in some small town, and right. we all get the same amount of money. But the call-to-cash ratio is drastically different depending on where you work. True. I think it's pride, too. You know where they say the 
plaque on your helmet is who you work for and the bumper sticker on the back of your coat is your family name. So do both of them proud for the people that came before you. And you want the full experience of the job. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. I love it. And that's it's the intangibles, right? Yeah. And that's why there's times where like in the middle of the night when we're getting run ragged, you know, you look up and look at all these high rises and even if it's a, a BS call, it's like, I love working in a city. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's kind of nice. It's, there's never a shortage of something happening. And even some medical calls are just rewarding. Just understand what's going on. It's a stimulating environment and I'd like to be part of it. Who are your guides and mentors? The guys that do it for the love of the job. That's kind of a no brainer, but there's a lot of guys that they put their names out there because they want to sell a product or some course. They want to be known as the guy or they want to be a ladder climber and be like, you know, they want to wear a white shirt, but for the wrong reasons. Guys that do it for the love of the job. Those are the guys I really look up to. Like currently my acting district chief, as you can see, he just misses being on the inside of the building. He misses doing the calls, but that's the kind of guy I want to go through the ranks. Mm-hmm. I want a guy that wants to do that. I want a guy that, that gets it, that has gotten it, right? He's got street cred, worked on the same truck as me, running all day, all night. Now he's in a better position to make influence. Another guy I worked with on the rescue is my acting captain. The night our, our pumper got hit and two of our guys almost got killed. Now he's a division chief. This guy, I was on Auto X team with him too, and uh, we've been through battle together. Now he is in such a good position to make change, and he is making a ton of change. So guys like that I hold very, very highly. I'm a huge fan of these guys, and I'm just glad that they're there because really, okay, so they may make 15% extra when they are acting or when they're this, but I mean, there's a lot of guys get 15% more that don't have that passion. And they also have the admin knowledge, which is something that I'm very, very, very lacking. Right. Hey, Mike, there's an email about that. I'm like, oh, emails. Cool. Uh, (laughs) And lacking because it just doesn't interest you, right? Yeah. Other things you've you've noticed that you've been lacking in over the years, you just gravitate to it and you just absorb it. Uh, Totally. You could do the same thing with men's stuff, but Uh, no thanks. Yeah. And like, I don't want to make this sound like Academy Award speech where you get cut off of the people, but like, you know, the group of friends that I run with as instructors, we met each other because they are instructors. A lot of times at some colleges, it's like, hey, I got a job at a college. I'm going to hire all my friends to teach at a college too, right? And they may not be the best, but they're like, hey, man, I'll give you a job. It'll make X amount of dollars. And uh, what are we doing next week? Don't worry about it. Just show up. I know this. I taught for two colleges. Yeah, the students won't know the difference. They won't know the difference. We're the big shots on I, campus. I heard that all the time. And I was just like, at first you try and convince yourself, well, yeah, you know, I'm refreshing my skills, but how much can you refresh putting up a ladder? Yes, you need to do it all the time. But when I'm teaching the basics of the basics, not like we're like teaching VES to these guys. And you almost want to keep on calling them kids, which you can't do. As for mentors, uh, I mean, hands down, one of the best guys for me, Andrew Broussard. I met this guy day one, and him and I just clicked. It's got to be, it's definitely over a decade, 13, 14 years, who knows. But something just clicked. Like, this guy is, he's the definition of integrity. He empowers other people. Right from the first time I started, like, talking to him, empowers you, empowers you, gives you information, uh, Super creative as a fabricator, making props. Like this guy comes up with props. I'm like, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you have time with all your kids. I, I, I do not know how you do it. And then he's like traveling and teaching and everything like that. And um, Cadiz as well. We talked about him before we started recording. Same kind of dude. Super creative, super good person. Like both these guys, humble, brass. I could talk to forever and ever and ever. I text them all the time just to say, hey, what's up? Sometimes technical questions, but a lot of times like, hey, what's up? I'm just doing this or how's things going? I'm writing a lot of stuff for our rigging we're doing a rigging component where we bought like a whole bunch of stuff to get into the heavy rescue business. So I was like, Brass and I had a, we had a, I think it was like eight, nine hour drive for a course. We were sitting in the car 
And I'm like, okay, I got to work on my computer. I got to work on these rigging equipment notes. I got so much work to do. I'm going to do this. I ended up talking to him the entire time. That computer didn't open on the way there, on the way back. I could just talk to this guy forever and ever and ever. And it's, it's, I don't know, it's not rehearsed. It's not like oh, I'm looking for things to say. It flows, common interests, funny. He's got stories. I've got stories. Like just amazing person. I can't say enough good about him. And if you've been in situations where you might be around people that you don't click with in that way, you know, you get moved to different stations or you like, and you meet someone on a different department. Yeah. Do you find it still really inspiring and reassuring to know that they exist? They are in the same thing as you are. Yeah. It keeps you from feeling alone sometimes. It gives you hope, right? Those are the guys doing the special operations stuff or tech rescue, whatever you want to call it. I was like, I'm putting in a request to buy a whole bunch of rigging stuff and I want to get like a petrogen torch and I want to get a grip hoist, stuff like that. I swear it just makes me grind my teeth. Everybody's like, "Uh, they're never going to do it. They're never going to do it. They're never going to do it. Well, you know what? What you need to do is give them the problem. Well, this is our problem. This is our solution. This is what it costs. And this is how you implement it. That's what they want to hear. And then they'll go, okay, here's $80,000 to buy stuff. I just couldn't stand that. Everybody's just so defeated. Like, ah, it's never going to happen. Well, guess what? It has. And then you look back and go, man, we did all this stuff. But it takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and time. Planting seeds for trees of shade that I may never enjoy, right? Couldn't be truer. I think it's going to pay off. Who knows? I feel really good about it. And, you know, if my bosses want to empower me to, again, we're talking about empowering people. These are my suggestions, and I think this will work because of this. And then you empower me, I'm not going to let you down, right? Even one little thing. Like I said, you do one bad thing, try and get away with something, done. You're done. Integrity is something, uh, you know, I said that about brass, but, you know, I tell my kids that all the time. Like, you do not sell your integrity for anything. No shortcuts for integrity. That's my thing. No way. And do you find having these projects that are long-term things gives you a balance of having your immediate gratification of crisis management and then balancing out a little bit of project management. Like I've said to uh, the guys on my truck or guys that are involved in special operations, what we've done for the heavy rescue stuff that's still being implemented, this is going to be, in my opinion, the first legit heavy rescue that I know of in the country. And it's not going to die. You know what else isn't going to die? The fact that we got smooth bores on all of our pre-connections, stuff like that. We've all been in high-rise fires where all of a sudden, boom, you know, you got this fog stream and now nothing's coming out of it. Because there's rocks and everything like that. I'm fighting the fight in our department right now. Yeah. So our culture is, that we're past that now. And I've been to at least three fires, I can think of the top of my head, where no water. And it was due to not having a smooth bore. Engine company classes that uh, the guys I know teach, one of the examples they do, they throw a bag of potato chips in the standpipe. And it literally, it's done. You got no water. Right? Now you got problems. Other mentors of mine. Ron Zellwacki, uh, being a good mentor for trench rescue, machine rescue. He's a Michigan urban search and rescue guy. Musar, former Pontiac battalion chief. Uh, he's another guy that said, you know, being a battalion chief, it was the worst years of his career. But, you know, he kept the push on and he kept on doing things for the right reasons. Like taking one for the team. Very much so. He's in retirement for a long time. And now, like, I look at him and he's still making the push. He's still doing research in trench. Like, trench is one of my passions. He'll send me a 300-page article of a study, and I'll read it. I understand maybe two pages of it, but I'm still going to read it, and I'm going to put those two pages to memory. Him and I text back and forth as of recently. It's been upwards of 10 times a day because of certain things in trench are evolving and training. And I realize how honored I am to have that conduit. This guy is the guy. Our last trench symposium we had in Michigan last fall, they had guys from China fly in and watch us do destructive testing on trenches. This isn't a neighboring county. They flew in from China to watch this. 
When we do trench rescue, we look at a strut and we go, oh, it's 80,000 pounds of pressure it can hold. Well, that's in a lab. What about the whole system? So he's creating systems and we're crushing them. I have two systems that we're going to test this year and we're going to crush it, see what it takes to fail it. Destructive testing, as they call it. This guy's talked to anybody that knows the rescue business. They'll, they'll know exactly who he is. But I remember about, eh, maybe it was 10 years ago, we were doing a machine rescue course just outside of Detroit. Pulled me aside the last day and he's like, come here, you, I want to talk to you. I was like, oh man, I'm getting shit. Because I'm always the class clown, goofing around, you know, making funny statements, stuff like that. Pulled me aside. He just said to me, you know, sometime you just know when you're talking to a good fireman. And I was like, man, that floored me. Oof. Yeah. It's a nice compliment. I, I didn't expect it. Gives you goosebumps. I, it just did. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And meanwhile, I thought I was getting in shit for something, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, when he did that, that actually did something more for me. It made me like, I'm not letting this guy down. So I don't know if that motivated me to do more, but it definitely made me feel good. And the guys that we were in there with, the group of people that we were doing the machine rescue with, all amazing dudes. That was a big, big moment for my fire service career. One of my biggest guides and mentors is Billy Leach from Big Rig Rescue. Everybody uses the words Big Rig Rescue, right? Big Rig, Big Rig, we're Big Rig. You're not Big Rig unless you're from Billy Leach's camp. Okay. He's the one that invented it. He's the one that did all the courses, didn't get a lot of money for doing it. He would have sponsors come and show their stuff, but he's like, I am not endorsing this. If we make it fail, I'll tell him your stuff's garbage. He died last year in May. Him and I, again, we spoke quite a bit at the time of his death. We had just finished, uh, like I said, we're trying to build a heavy rescue company for my city. So I was like, okay, I know quite a bit about uh, heavy rescue equipment, being around the block with the instructors that I know and everything. So uh, we basically built a comprehensive list of what you need to be on a heavy rescue. You need type 100 chain minimum. You need cradle hooks. You need grip hoists. You need snatch blocks. Put together a list of everything you need to be a turnkey heavy rescue. And anybody that's talked to me, I've talked to guys from other cities and like, so what do you need? And I'm like, here's a list. Just get the money. Again, what's the problem? What's the solution? What does it cost? How do we implement it? And boom, here's your list. Don't spend the year that I did trying to figure out how to do this stuff. Because you may not even know what a foundry hook is. So a lot of fire departments do that though. They were, well, we're going to do it our way. Right. So this guy used to put on courses where you'd lift a fully loaded cement truck off of a car. This is not playtime. This is a real, real problem. If you drop it, you could kill somebody in training easily. One thing I'd really, really liked about him a lot is there's a lot of rescuers that won't even admit to being paramedics. This guy was so patient-oriented. And you look at his Big Rig Rescue page, and he would do something about, okay, cement truck on a car, like I mentioned before. How are you going to get it off? What are the weights? What are your angles? 200 likes. But then he'd do something like, hey, whole blood for trauma victims in trap patients. Two likes. Mike Desarski and some other guy. You know, but he always used to tag me in the medical things. And what he also said about Facebook is he's like, I'm an old dude. I don't go on websites, but Facebook just pushes it at me a bad accent, right? But he had something there for an older dude. Like he was right. Facebook, it pushes what is important to you. It's a tool that you can choose to use properly yeah. or it can be a waste of time. Yeah. Oh, totally. You look around the fire hall, everybody's got their heads down, mm -hmm. scrolling on their phones, which, okay, what are they looking at? I don't really care. It's their time. Sure. But I mean, Facebook for me is just, it's a more of a professional thing. I just like yeah. put out information. Just like books, right? You could be reading a Harlequin novel or you could be reading one of the classics. Yeah. You're still reading a book. Yeah, totally. But what are you reading? Yeah. So what I really liked about him too, just like I said with Brass and Z, Ron Zellocki, this is the sharing information. Like I give information, I just taught a course out East and they were such a switched on crew. I gave him 15 years of forcible entry notes. So here you go. Take it. I'm following Andrew's lead. I'm following Billy's lead. Uh, he gave me so much stuff and he'd always say to me, please share. 
didn't want any money for it. Uh, he actually offered to come up about six years ago to our department and teach for free. And, you know, train division at the time wasn't interested. And I'm like, this is Billy Leach, man. When he died, uh, I was actually on King Street, downtown Toronto. My phone called. It was brass. And usually we text. So I was like, oh, he's calling me. And for some reason, I just thought something's not right. And he's just like, hey, man, um, Billy died. I literally felt like something kicked me in the stomach. And I just talked to the guy. I don't know if this is going to come out right or not. The guy just died. I really liked him. And like, he, this guy used to put me on the spot all the time. We'd be on courses. And I remember he had that fully loaded cement truck that I keep on mentioning. And I mention it because you look on my Instagram, there's a picture of him and I standing in front of this thing. Right away, he's like, uh, you're IC for this. I was like, but I was IC yesterday and the day before. He's like, nope, you're doing this one. He wasn't doing it to be mean. He was doing it to push me to my limits. Just like doing things like podcasts, public speaking, right? You pushes you out of your comfort zone to help you grow. You may feel like you're not capable of doing it, but during it, you'll find a lot of it that you are. Yeah, that was a great scenario because we were with Ohio Task Force One doing a course down there and it's Task Force, right? These guys are great. A lot of heavy metal being pushed around and supported and chains and stuff like that. And I remember we lifted the cement truck barrel four inches. So I just kind of looked and I went, stop, everybody stop, freeze, fist up in the air, nobody do anything. And I said, we're going to plan B. We got four inches. We're doing a full side on the car. Stabilize it. Don't move. Before there's a catastrophic failure attempting to lift this, let's get the patient out. If you got to break their leg pulling them out, we're going to do that. He's just giving this smile and limped out like he did because he had a stroke, right? He's like, boy, sometimes you can't put this fire out. This is what you got to do. Ended up doing a full side in the car. So when he died, I felt like, even though every time I talked to him, I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, like you always end an email with thank you so much, but they don't think they're doing anything special because that's who they are. But um, I was asked to fly down and be a pallbearer. So I took that opportunity to fly down to North Carolina. And it's like with zero hesitation. And my wife was very supportive of it. She realized that how much it kind of hurt me. It's, I felt like, wow, we had so many things planned. We were planning a bus course when he died. And it's like, well, that, that ain't happening now. And the funny thing is, nothing's happening now. And it's funny when somebody like this passes away, how many people are willing to jump and take information? Yeah, who fills the spot? Well... Some shoes are impossible to fill. Sometimes. Well, it's, the, his definitely were impossible mm -hmm. to fill, right? Like, you know, I still hear him at the start of the rescue classes. Like, you know, you got these guys, a heavy rescue. Oh, you a heavy rescue? You know, you got written, when in doubt, cut them out. Cancel everybody else. We got this, right? You ain't heavy rescue unless you know this. The Billy Leach five steps that he basically invented coined, and it's out there. Him and I wrote a cheat sheet that you can put in your binder if you're a company officer in a squad. And... You know, we put it together. So if you're on scene, you can go rip out a piece of paper. You're patient. You know, do vitals. You, your scene stabilization. You are identify cargo. So at least he'll always live in that way, right? Those are the three guys that when you say like, who are your mentors? Just it not not hard to think of at all. And then there's like I said, there's tons of other people out there. But you know, these are the guys that uh, I've worked with that have empowered me. I feel a lot, and I feel it's only fair to pass that on. What made you want to get involved in AutoX competitively? Uh, it was kind of a no-brainer. It was uh, when I worked on the rescue truck, our city's last rescue, before we got away from rescues, we're in the busiest stretch of highway in North America, the busiest. And we did a lot of vehicle extrications there. And it's funny, I just talked to somebody the other day, and I was like, you know, how many extrications do the trucks get now? Now, when I left that rescue to become an acting captain, our truck did 44 extrications that year, right? 44. So... We had to know what we were doing, and we were pretty fast at it. Two of my other members on that crew were AutoX team members. 
I was a coach originally, which is kind of backwards. They said, oh, we need you to coach the inside guy and the medical guy, right? So, okay, yeah, sure, no problem. I'll coach, I'll coach. And then a couple years went by and uh, after coaching, and they're like, oh, we're kind of stuck. Could you please just one season be on the team? And I was like, yeah, sure, why didn't you ask earlier? They're like, well, because we thought you were too busy. I was like, I would have come on this team a long time ago. Instead of teaching somebody else, I would have just done it. It was really, really, really good being part of the Turk uh, Transportation Emergency Rescue Committee competitions. Traveled all over North America, competed against teams from Europe, Germany, England, Scotland. It was it was amazing. And those the guys from Europe are like ninjas, man, with their space helmets, doing flips over cars. Our team was kind of known as, again, like the partiers. But we won. We won a lot. For me, it was just an amazing group of guys. And I remember the first competition I did was in uh, New York State. Being in that sequester before is like this pressure cooker. And it's just you feel the pressure, the pressure. And we were a little bit better in different teams, uh, or we handled it differently. Most would just sit there and sweat, but we used to blast heavy metal music and just listen and listen. Even in the the sequester would be far away from the pit where they're smashing up cars, and they'd always make our cars really smashed up extra bad. We would bring the, the radio with us in the van. We'd open the doors. Boom. Let's do this. Our crew's on scene. Boys, give me out an inner circle. Medic, follow me. And then you got 20 minutes. Let's unfuck this. <laughs> Let's make this right. There was times I remember being in Myrtle Beach in a parking lot in August and I was inside the car and I'm like, I think I'm actually having a stroke. I felt something growing behind my one right eye going like, I'm having a stroke, but we just got four minutes left. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> I'm like, oh man. That's the one where we won first place for every type of pit. We did really well that one. And it was the hardest competition I've ever been involved in. Some of the best guys, the guys from Europe were amazing. The guys from the States, Canada, like Southwestern Ontario, funny enough, best teams best teams always the contenders you know so that's something to be very proud of for us in Ontario you get in a wreck on the 401 or something like that odds are you're gonna get taken care of it's a good place to live <laughs> yeah no kidding yeah something else I want to mention about being part of an auto extrication team is a lot of people don't understand the extra time you put into it guys in those teams put in hundreds of hours of extra training in difficult situations right again being put in a pressure cooker like you don't get paid anymore for this when I did it, it was you come in every Tuesday and unless your kid's in the hospital, you better show up. And that's kind of how it is. And guys look at that and like, oh, you guys just want to go party. Oh, yeah, sure. After the comp, we will. But that's a lot of work. Other things like firefighters without borders. That's a ton of time commitment. Guys that do benevolent funds, blood drives. These guys do so much extra work that really just guys don't even acknowledge it. When you've been there, you look at, we have people that do the combat challenge, fire fit, toughest two minutes in sport, right? And I look and I go, hey, man. Thank you for what you're doing. You're representing us. And I know it's an extreme time commitment. And the look is like, ooh, nobody says that. They usually just say, oh, you're on a gravy train because you want next shift off. No, man. I'm going to run upstairs until I'm going to vomit my mask, <laughs> right? So that is so appreciated. Every once in a while, you got to be the one person that says, hey, good job, instead nice. of the other ones. Like, hey, whatever. You mentioned earlier about guys trying to game the system, maybe like, oh, I get the same amount of pay and I'm at the quieter hall and I'm winning because... I'm doing the least amount of work for the most money. Yeah. But they're missing out. I would definitely say so. I remember before I became a flight medic, before I got involved in special operations, or even when I was, was in special operations, I kind of didn't fully get it. And a lot of people look at, why would you do all that extra work? Why would you do all that extra work? Well, there's times when I'll land on a scene and those same medics that are going, man, when you guys aren't on calls, you guys are studying. Man, why would I want to do that? This is what I always say to them. They land, you're in chaos. There's like 12 people there and they want to know what you want to do. It's like, hey, I'm... I'm Mike. I'm here to make your problem my problem. What can I do for you today? And they are so relieved that 
that problem is no longer theirs. The pay is not more for doing these extra things, but you know what? The rewards and also there's not a sense of panic. You know, you did tech rescue, right? You do special operations. People are like, oh, there's the men with capes. Oh, 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 the superheroes are here. Someone's pinned in a car. They're like doing the wave. Come on over here. Cut them out. Like, yeah, man, sure. Tact discretion diplomacy. Let's do this. You've got to really do that. But, you know, talking down to guys that, you know, are making the effort, that's a way of these other people of just causing a distraction from them, right? The fact that they're not. Yeah. I'm secure enough in my own skin that you can say whatever you want to me. Trust me. It gets set. I'm fine with it. I don't care. If I know I'm doing it for the right reason, and again, there's that word integrity, right? Like, I don't have anything to prove to anybody except to myself. And part of you enjoys it. You have fun. Yeah, I really do. Yeah, we're at a point right now where we're literally every day doing confined space, every day doing ropes. Right now, we're concentrating every day doing more trench, 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 high-level trench. We used to get trained 45 minutes every three years-ish, maybe if you're lucky for trench. You know, I just did classroom 40 hours. We went out in the pits and said, okay, uh, let's shore this trench. And, you know, with that extra knowledge and training and critical thinking, the guys figured out a system. I was like, this is advanced. Like, this is the most advanced in this country right now, what you just did. And I didn't even have to coach you through it. So those critical thinking skill things, like, that's where I may have those, the critical thinking skills. And I definitely have them from being a critical care flight paramedic. I was talking to my chief of training the other day around other people. And I said, yeah, policies are kind of, you know, they, they just kind of fall into place. And she kind of didn't like that. And I was like, well, what, what I'm trying to mean is, if I take it, for example, as a flight medic, when you come right out of school, they give you five or seven medications. I don't know what it is, right? And they teach you like, this is pathophysiology. But you're going to follow these orders anyway. So you'll stay within the boundaries and keep them safe. Uh, then when you become an advanced care medic, they give you more leeway, more medications. And then the big thing, this is where the big jump is. And a lot of people don't know this. When you become a flight medic, you go from uh, advanced care land to advanced care flight. And your medication list goes from, I don't know, 20 to over 60. Wow. Right? Tons. But that's like two years to school roughly. And like I wore out a medical dictionary just because now I got to do doctor talkie. I don't know what these words mean. So they give you this massive scope of practice. But then when you become a critical care, it's around two years of school, maybe a little bit more, same thing, but it's only like a 10, 15 drug jump. Well, why is that? Because they're teaching you critical thinking skills. You're not following protocols. You go, the patient's blood pressure is doing this. They're tachycardic because of this. Why is this? I can treat this with these four drugs or these two or this or combine this, put all these things together. So it's a massive amount of school to be critical care. And then now you can make those decisions without, you know, depending so much on that recipe book. That was my point. When you become super proficient at being a firefighter, all of us may know the how to fight a car fire policy for the exam purposes. But when I approach a car, I don't think about my policy. I think about that bumper could do that. Those tires will do that. Anybody's being next to a transport truck where a tire goes, that'll happen once. And then you'll know to stay away from that tire that's on fire, right? But boom which looks really good on the news, right? looks like, man, that tire just blew up and those guys didn't even flinch. So I'm not saying don't follow the policies by any means. What I'm saying is like, we don't have a policy on firefighting. If this house is on fire and I'm going in, they don't give me a policy. You need to know how to be a firefighter. Uh, some of the people I work with, they like that term critical thinking. Rope rescue, this is how you tie an anchor, that one way. Uh-uh, critical thinking. We have four or five different ways we can tie an anchor, putting this system together. And that's what I really wanted to do with Trench is design a course where it's not just a 45-minute. These guys know exactly all the soil forces. I'm not saying they're going to teach you tributary areas of a soil force at 20 feet down in a 16-foot whatever, right? I'm going to explain it to you once and go, this is why we do this. 
And I felt so good the other day when crews brand new to trench came out and went, boom, we'll just do this. We'll shore this. We'll use this, this. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Right. The other instructor that's with me, very switched on guy. He looked at him afterwards and I was thinking it, but the other guy said, you guys are at a level here, day two of live that we were better at after doing it for 15 years. So that is the critical thinking aspect of firefighting and rescue. And that's one of, that's super important to me. And I think that, you know, when I explain it to some really smart people that I happen to work with, they agreed with that term and they love that term. So hopefully that term starts to be commonplace in the fire service, right? I'm not going to say I'm not following policies. Yeah. What I'm getting is policies don't create knowledge and experience and skill. Yeah. You get the people that have the knowledge, experience, and skill, and you make them write the policy. Right. You follow the policy until you kind of figure it out. The policies that keep you safe-ish, right? right? But with your knowledge, like you said, knowledge, experience, okay, I'm going to deviate a little bit. And that's why they're guidelines most often. And they, they've changed the term, which is so much better, because I don't know, call that followed a policy. Like, it's always something. Ice on the sidewalk, and I write neighbor, wind. But they're a good start. Yeah, they are a good start, yeah. Has anything from competition translated directly to fire incidents? Yeah, 100%. When you do competitions, you've got to play that game. So the judges can check their little sheets in the box, right? You say all the right words, patient access, all, all, the, all these things. But what it really does is when you go to these competitions, you're going up against some really good people. So they make them very complex incidents. And I wouldn't even say simulated because they're really smashed up. And, you know, that's... That really is an armored car on top of that other car. And if you do something wrong, you could get hurt. So we'll always say like uh, plan A is a modified roof, plan B, full side, whatever it's going to be. When I'm doing a plan A, I'm looking for plan B. And that's just ingrained into your head because it just, it won't leave you. But like we were saying with training, it's just, it comes naturally. So when you do that at a high level of competition, your brain just automatically, that's how it works. Uh, there's a saying in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? The harder you train, the luckier you get, or you think you die. Those are two things that you live by. And you learn after a while that the more training, it just comes naturally. You don't need to think. You just react, hopefully correctly. But that also spills over not only vehicle extrication, but trench. You're shoring up a trench, and all of a sudden a corner starts coming in. You're like, whoa, that's, let's do the math. That's 18,000 pounds going to come in. We need to switch something, change something here. It just automatically happens, and I try and train my guys that too, which the pretty smart guys. They pick up on it. How much is being dual trained in medic and fire helped you with both roles? I would say immensely, especially being on special operations. My shift has been lucky enough, say for trench, three trench calls in the last 10 years, my shift alone. That's a lot. Air ambulance, I've probably been to 14. So I get exposed to that. The biggest thing is heavy vehicle incidents. Something that I was speaking at trauma conference last year, it kind of just popped into my head when I was writing the PowerPoint. What I've noticed in my Rolodex, and I, I had this Again, I keep on referring to cement trucks, but like these are the worst ones. We had a cement truck, blew a tire on a bridge, rolled down the embankment, barrel went off, cement everywhere. Guy was pinned, pinned hard. I showed up there and I didn't say anything. I just said, oh, my coworker in the area was like, oh, you're going to go down? I said, yeah, I'll go down. And then uh, I heard the chief yell down, listen to what that medic says. And my partner had said, this guy knows a few things about this stuff. So we get exposed to it all the time. And it was after that call, I just happened to be writing for this trauma conference and I came to this conclusion that any incident I've been at that has involved a heavy vehicle or a 30 degree grade, add one hour to that call. And people are like, man, that's a lot. I put it out on Facebook, just saying anybody else feel this way. And you know, there's a couple of people like, no way. Yeah. Add it up because there's a lot of times I'll roll into 
St. Mike's or Sunnybrook, something like that, downtown Toronto. And they're like, where were you? We were waiting for like the past 90 minutes, like a complex vehicle extrication. The good thing is a lot of times I can talk right to the doctors with my phone. A lot of paramedics don't have that ability mm-hmm. where I can talk directly to the doc that is right there waiting for us. I get exposed to a lot of heavy vehicle incidents and that's in my portfolio. Like that's what I really like. And that's, I think why Billy Leach and I got along together so well. Cause I'd be like, Hey man, had this, what do you think of this? And you need each other because there isn't a lot of people to go to, to have those conversations, that level of yeah. high level, heavy rescue. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like you say the words heavy rescue, like that ain't just a sticker on a truck. Like Billy Leach said, right? Like that is, you need to understand what that means. And I've been to a lot of incidents where, oh, a heavy wrecker's coming. No, they're not. Five o'clock in the afternoon in Toronto, you're not going anywhere. If it's in the suburb of Toronto and all the heavy wreckers live on the 400 downtown, they're not getting there. So to say a heavy wrecker will come is not true at all. Currently, you know, we run with airbags and strut systems. We can mitigate this incident with that. You know, I may need some help from grip hoists or heavier struts. The saying experience is something you get right after you needed it. I've been to a few. I've been to a heavy vehicle incident where they dropped a truck on a guy. His vital signs dramatically changed at that point. And I said, never again. So I really took that on. Like, I don't even really think people there even understood what had just happened. The good thing also about being working air ambulances, you literally get a bird's eye view and you go, this is what's happening. I'm getting an update on my phone. This is what's happening. And I have the luxury of not showing up and going, holy cow. This is what's happening. I have the luxury of being far away first, getting information and trying to formulate a bigger rescue plan. But us on the fire trucks, special operations is usually the third, fourth truck in. But if there's not proper radio communication and when you're standing right next to that truck, you may not see the full picture. And it's given me a bigger Rolodex of incidents to draw from, which every day I look out the window when I'm working there and go, we're super thankful to have this. I'm very lucky. I never forget how lucky I am. But there are some times, you know, People go to the CNE and spend four hundred dollars for a helicopter ride, and me working the air ambulance, a phone rings, and I go fuck, right? Ah, it's fall. Oh, I get to look at some nice leaves. Okay, I'm okay, <laughs> right? Pretty colors, pretty pilots. Right. That's what the job's all about, right? <laughs> but then also as a as a medic, we recently had a call where a car launched off an embankment, and it was chaos, steep slope slash high angle slash trauma slash whatever, and I was switching gears left and right. I was fine with it. It didn't alarm me. With the medics, I'll give them a good report. I'll tell them what's going on. The smart ones usually figure stuff out. If you want my help, I'm totally happy to help. Most of the medics we deal with are amazing, right? We're all part of the team, frontline. Politics aside, when push comes to shove, we all get it done. So it's really helped. And, you know, I'm lucky enough that uh, the medics in my area, a lot of them know who I am. And even the ones that don't, you know, just treat them with full respect. What do you need from me? I'll just, uh, whatever, I'll do it, right? Uh, I'm glad the teamwork that we have is really good. With the improvements with car technology and safety, like I feel over the years now, we'll roll up on a number of car accidents. You think, oh, this is going to be bad. And people are walking around. Well, that was the conversation that we just had the other day. Like I said, my last year on the rescue before I became an acting, 44 extrications on that truck. And now I asked the guy there who was working at my station. I go, hey, man, what are you guys doing? Like one a month-ish, something like that? Like, because it's the busiest stretch of highways. Like probably once every three or so months. I was like, whoa, that's changed. But I've noticed it. So I'm just like, am I just not getting these things? That rescue did the most extrications. The current truck I'm on goes to the most fire. Kind of a perfect time to switch trucks. I did the extrications and then those just slow down and fires have not slowed down in our city. Neither of your city. 
man, you can make these cities out of bedrock and somehow people still find a way to burn these things down, right? But you're right, with the vehicle extrications, the cars are just so safe. But what I have found is when they are trapped, they are very trapped. And we've had to change some of our uh, tactics, a little bit more ram work, saw work. We had a fatality, I don't know, six months ago or something like that. And as soon as I jumped off the truck, I was like, ram and saw, ram and saw, guys. That's all we need. That's what got them out. But that's also from the auto X stuff. He's like, boom, I got my plan A. This is what we're doing. Plan B, and I got that in the back of my head, but this is all ram and saw. And that's what they do with the auto X comps. They hide you, and then you turn the corner and go, surprise. You got your game face on, you're ready to go. Yeah, it's funny you say that because we just had that conversation last shift. Like, man, we're not cutting a lot of people out of cars lately. But it does happen. As much as the fires are still occurring, do you feel that there are as many worrisome ones that would give guys some pause do you worry sometimes that newer firefighters they don't get scared often enough to have enough respect to reflect and think oh god this is what this is it kind of depends on what station you're at we were saying last year it's like oh my gosh we're like running one fire a day maybe it's a kitchen fire maybe it's a basement fire but on average we're going to a fire once a shift ish and then it kind of just dried up the last few months so pump at my station that a whole truck is like always staffed with new guys and those guys get to see a lot of stuff whether it be medical mvcs or or fires we have a lot of fires that aren't that bad but then when they are going our basements like they're hot man like they're so hot and you're going in blind it's hard to relay that though i, I feel hope to that they're people. nervous because i'm nervous right but they might not be I think that's what I'm trying to drive at here. Yeah, well, that's funny. When you teach them in colleges, like the reason I quit teaching at one college was, you know, they went to a burn tower that was a propane prop. And I was like, get down, it's hot. They're like, no, it's not hot at all. And they're leaning up against the wall. I'm like, okay, pretend it's hot. Right. And they're going in, bing, bing, bing. They're hitting the sensors. And it's just like, all right, I'm not doing this for the money. The money's not that good. And I'm not teaching. I can't live with this. And previously, throw a bunch of pallets on a bunch of hay. You could show them thermal layering and banking down and take your glove off, feel the heat. No, no, safety, safety, right? Take your glove off. And for every what foot, it's they say sometimes it's 100 degrees in some fires, right? So feel the heat a little bit. And now it's just like, this is why you need a truck with senior experience on it. I'm sorry, maybe not senior in years, but somebody that has learned something in the past. You know, they say, oh, you're a young department. Okay. A lot of guys that do their first year 30 times on a job. Okay, sayonara. But then you get a captain that's been on for 15 years, it's switched on, that's busy stations and actually learned and listened. How do you balance all these things and family, being an instructor, special rescue? <sighs> oh, Google Calendar and uh, forgiving wife, I guess. It's not easy. The outside instructing is taking a bit of a back seat for me, I, even though I, I truly love it. Just did a course of forcible entry. I kind of put that on the back burner to do special operations teaching and stuff. But, you know, it was so good to get out there and just hammer the irons with the guys. And, you know, the funny thing is, it's like, you go to these places and no matter if it's one of the biggest cities in the country or a smaller city out east, they're all kind of at the same level. And they're like, they're a little bit embarrassed. And they're like, oh, man, I don't know this. I go, everybody, that's okay. You're fine. So balancing that, that was a four-day trip. So that was a little hard. Air ambulance, I just give my schedule, fill that out a month in advance, and I'll fill in the holes with everything else. But the thing is, work is not my priority right now. It's my three and six-year-old. It's 100%. Family is always coming first because these are days I'm not going to get back. Every day I drop them off at school, I get a picture of all three of us. Wow. Every day. It's hard when you live downtown Toronto, people walk in front of your camera. It happened this morning. I'm like, you didn't see we were actually posing? It's not an easy juggle. Uh, you know, Once my kids are sick of me when they're older, then I'll probably do more. Retirement's nine years down the road. So... I'll just do more instructing where it fits. And 
keep working on the air ambulance. People always see me, oh, did you quit the air ambulance? I'm like, why would I do that? Oh, seven years of school, I'm just going to flush that down the drain. Plus, it's fun. You like getting pushed. Again, like I said, pushed out of that comfort zone. And you were mentioning that the doctors hammer you pretty hard every year. Yeah, the the yearly recertification is uh, it's four days of every day is a different physician. So an eMERGE doc, an ICU doc, a pediatrician, and they just bash your skulls in. It's funny, I see some medics, not my coworkers, but other medics. Oh, I have to do my yearly research and they're all nervous. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm researching for like 90 drugs from doctors that know a lot more than I know. And, and I can't wait to do it. Like I literally have so much fun. If you look on my Instagram, like last year, I was with three of some of the most seasoned medics in the country that are critical care, high time. And we had a blast laid back, making jokes, but really getting pushed. And a lot of these scenarios, they'll push you to failure. They'll push you. This patient will not survive, but they still, well, you held on really long with that. Because the next one might. It really excites me. Like I said, it's weird. We had some new people to the air ambulance world and I see them coming out of there. They're sweating. They're red. Look like they want to cry. And I'm like, let's do this. Who wants to do first scenario? I will. And who's getting who? First scenario is always easiest, right? But, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy that challenge. Again, like getting pushed out of my comfort zone. I thrive on it. Tell me about being dropped into Algonquin. Oh, yeah. That was an interesting call. My partner I was working with that day doesn't like the sun, doesn't like water. And we had to get somebody that was injured. And the only place they could land, they looked for like five different places to land. And all they could find was this little, little rock. It was probably six feet by four feet. So they put the helicopter down. We had the door open already because we were looking for somewhere to land in the back. And they put the one wheel down on the rock. And here we go. We climb off with our bags, drop on this rock. And the helicopter takes off and you're like fingers dug into the rock. And you're just like, please don't let me get blown into the water. I mean, I'm not going to drown, but I don't want to get wet. And there's these people on a canoe. They're nearby. And I'm like waving. Can you guys come over here? And they're like, what? Is this a movie? I'm like, no, I think we have to go over there because somebody's hurt. And they're just like, this is absolutely crazy. You can see this look of disbelief. They canoed us to the injured patient who was actually stable. But we ended up having canoe him for about 45 minutes to an hour to a float plane, which flew us to where the helicopter was. Luckily, the patient wasn't hurt all that bad, but definitely needed to go somewhere. That was interesting. The guy I work with too, funny enough, doesn't like flying. And when you're flying in a float plane, it's a very uncomfortable feeling, especially with those guys up in the north, like hot dogging through the bush. I was a little bit intimidated as well. <laughs> no, I'm not going to lie to you. Do you interior camp? No, I don't. I should. A lot of my friends do. But I guess you'd probably see it a bit different too, considering when you go off on these trips and you're in the middle of nowhere and you're thinking something goes wrong, you have anybody coming. Well, that's one thing. Like you want to talk about being scarred. I look at that, like people go, I'm going to retire and move out to a cottage. I'm like, I'm going to retire and move as close to Toronto General as I can, man. So when I get that Cadillac arrest, I'm right near the hospital, right? Come fix me. Clean out the pipes. <laughs> My son got really, really, really sick last year, like ICU sick. And sick kids was four blocks away and brought him in there. And I you know, said, uh, hey, he's septic. My wife said that to them. And they're like, okay, game on. Guerrilla warfare on the antibiotics. And they fixed them. Hmm. You live in Pumpkin's Corners, man. Those are the calls we go to. Oh, we've been sitting on the kid for four days and this isn't working. Well, now the kid's really in trouble. So yeah, I don't like being out in the middle of nowhere. And if you are with other people, they feel good that you're with them, but it's not like you have all your equipment with you. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah, no, I don't bring anything with me. There's a certain level of uh, basic life support that you would usually have in a car with you just because you know that that's going to make a difference. Uh, another call that really stood out for me was uh, we had a windstorm last year. 
big windstorm. It was, you know, on our Friday, Sunday, 24 hour shift. So Friday we, we had a windstorm and we ended up running all over the city. We had tons of elevator calls. Uh, there was two fires going on. We we're pulled off a fire to go to another elevator call because we're the only crew that's trained in that stuff. I think it was 16 elevator calls we did that day, elevator rescues, because the wind was pressurizing the shafts and getting them all stuck. So that was a busy, busy, busy Friday. So Sunday morning we come in. I'm still bagged. I'm exhausted from this windstorm that we had. Whatever, it's fine. Running around like crazy. I needed my Snickers bar. It's cranky. So we come in uh, Sunday morning. We're like, oh, man, guys, let's take it easy today. I got like 20 reports I got to do. We're not doing anything. Can we go for coffee? Yeah, we can go for coffee. Fine, we'll go for coffee. We'll get a grande americano quad shot we end up going out for coffee the barista has my coffee ready it's like right there and the tones go off for an alarm call right up the street and this normally is the pumpers call but because we're on the air we're like we're right on top of it so i'm like oh okay my coffee's right there and you know working in aviation every morning we have meetings in the kitchen and it's called crew resource management uh where everybody gets together the pilots the engineers that fix the helicopters, thank God for them, and the medics. Everybody gets together and goes, these are our issues today. You know, sick kids' helipads closed. This one helicopter's out of service for this, but if you need it, we can put it in. And we have weather coming in from the west after 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Everybody together, everybody's on the same page. So at 3 p.m., we don't go, what? Surprised? It's a really good idea. It comes from uh, aviation does it, military does it. You know, I think we should do it as a fire service. Um at the end of our crew resource management meeting that we have every day, no matter what, is you pick one of the 10 or 12 flaws that leads to crashes in aviation, right? We've had two crashes in uh, our system in the last few years, four fatalities. So we're big on making sure this doesn't happen again. So one of them we pick is complacency. We fly these things all the time. What could happen? You know, they say flying is hundreds of hours of boredom accompanied by sheer moments of terror. So we're just used to the thing working. They talk about complacency, and uh, one of the things to say about a complacency in the aviation world is tell yourself you're being complacent and you will stop doing it. So that day when my coffee was there and there was an alarm call, I was like, oh, it's two seconds. Is this going to make a difference? What's it going to make a difference? It's an alarm call. It's not like we're getting multiple calls for this, right? All right, you know what? I will be back in 10 minutes. Okay, no problem. It'll be cold. That's fine. At least I'll get my caffeine in me. We run on this call. Uh, we get there first. The pump at our station's out, so my next in truck's pretty far away. Whatever. Security guard meets me at the rig. He goes, uh, yeah, being up there, it's the 20th floor. There's nothing. There's nothing on the cameras, and there's nothing there. Okay. Leave my air pack. Nope. Tell yourself you're being complacent, and you'll stop doing it. Grab my air pack. Grab my thermal imaging camera. Grab the irons. Grab the hose. Grab it all. So myself, my acting captain, my acting captain's one hell of a fireman great guy. I literally do trust him with my life uh, as I do with the rest of my crew. We end up going in there, getting the elevator, like, uh, take the elevator right to the floor. Complacency. You're doing it. Stop doing it. Boom. We go two below the fire floor because we're supposed to. And that is a policy for a reason. Walk up, get to the 20th floor, take a look around. I'm like, hey, Mike, uh, you go this way and I'll go this way. He goes one way in the hallway. I go the other way. And then I hear him yell, T-bone. T-bone. I turn around and there's black smoke charging the ceiling. Okay. All right. Control. Squad one. Upgrade to a full alarm. We got a heavy smoke on the 20th floor. Dispatch is amazing. Doesn't skip a beat. There's another call in the air. It was a hotel. So it was like five or six calls or whatever they send for that. Boom. Everybody switched to a different channel. All right. You're designated on the fire channel. Okay, cool. We get to the door. Take a peek in. 
kids toys everywhere heavy black smoke banking down probably a foot from the floor or something like that i was like here we go all right we shut the door right so uh it doesn't grow we're hooking up to do a quick uh search and fire attack turn on the standpipe did it in like a second turn on the standpipe the water goes right down to the first kink in the hose on the carpet and stops and i'm like oh that's a problem okay if there's any time where you should be freaking out it's now but we didn't not at all i said uh control be advised uh, we have no water on the 20th floor zero and i remember even saying that they're like no water i said zero so my acting looks at me he's like do you want to get the fire extinguisher we'll push it back i was like okay good so we go in make entry hindsight's 2020 i would have probably taken the hose cabinet hose in and just for a line to follow out lesson learned didn't do it went in pushed the fire back the whole kitchen was involved it was actually rolling over the whole unit pushed it back a little bit with the uh dry chem extinguisher and like I see all these toys, so I'm like, boom, going corner to corner, floor to ceiling windows, going around, see a bedroom, look in the bedroom, put my face to the floor, I can see a crib. That's where I'm going. Jump over the bed to the crib, pull the crib over side, do a search inside the crib, can't find anything, go into the closet. I'm like, man, my guy, time's running out, man. I can see this fire building. I can feel it coming in the room. I'm like, we got to get out of here. Mike's doing the one room. I'm doing this room. This is like not really a man-oriented search. This is more like we got to get this done quick. This is like a primary-ish quick. Nobody's in there. How could nobody be in here? What is going on here? We ended up going out and there was one bedroom condo, but it was still so much smoke that we were disorientated. I remember not getting lost, but like getting misdirected. I ended up, boom, okay, no, I'm in a bathroom. Okay, that's not the way out. I got to go back here. I got to go towards where there's not the fire. Okay, I'm getting out that way. So we get out there. The truck starts showing up and then I just hear somebody go, you have water. I see the line jump on the floor because it was still fully open. So the line jumps, we make entry, hit it, knock it down, put the fire out. Other trucks show up. It's like, it's okay. It's all done. Squad one got it done. Doing a search. I'm like, nobody's in here. What's going on? Well, the person in the unit saw the fire, took herself and her kids out, went to the lobby and literally watched us walk by and get in the elevator and didn't say anything about anything. So that's human behavior. I can't explain that at all. But how many times in that story, I was fully ready to be complacent. And I would have been in a lot of trouble. And the people that might have been in the apartment would have been in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Like this was not a pot on the stove. This was a rolling, rolling. The condo was going. And that was a few times in there where I'm just really glad that that aviation phrase that is drilled into our head all the time, tell yourself you're being complacent. You'll stop doing it. That saved my butt that day. And you know what? I got nine or 10 years left. That call is sticking in my head forever. You, know, you get close and I'm 19 years on. Nah, nothing's happened. Well, things have happened, but really, what could happen? So that is one that I like to tell because it's one that really woke me up a lot. And I've never been complacent, but that was one where it was just that day. It was just that day. I was so tired. And I was just so, <clears throat> nope, always do it. So now I will always do it. Where did uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu come in? I've always kind of done martial arts my whole life, but I was doing like the Wing Chun, Ishinru, and then some boxing. And then... um a bunch of years ago, I actually started backwards. I did uh, a little bit of MMA sparring with guys that taught the different martial arts and their own hybrid theories of what martial arts were. Um, trained with a guy that's now in the UFC a little bit, like one-on-one training. And he was really good. Misha Serkinov, awesome dude. Uh, just a, a destroyer. He's a tank, but the most respectful human being. And then I was like, okay, you know what? I want to start specializing. So, you know, you always get nervous and, you know, stepping into the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu place the first time. That 
is the hardest part is walking in there the first day. The first few months, I wanted to quit. I was just rolling with the wrong guys, right? High-ranking guys that were kicking the shit out of me. Then some other guys kind of took me into their wings, like, don't roll with him, roll with this guy, roll with this guy. And it's funny, too, like, the black belts are the best. They're very few and far between in this country. But the black belts will let you get them in some danger, and then they will take it out. And they'll put you in a little bit of a danger and help you get out of it. That's what I really like about it. There's one guy that I roll with, literally 138 pounds. And he tells me that every time we roll. It is like getting caught in a machine. Like I've had other Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu guys go like, man, like you got like man strength there. Like you're hard, but I'm not a black belt. Like the technique, and again, they do it without even thinking. You think you die. And it's something I was going at hard for about three years until I tore my bicep and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tore it more. So I kind of slowed down on it a little bit. And now I kind of look at it. I was talking to a guy from Brazil and he's like, no, we don't aim to be a black belt, which I never really did. I just didn't want to be a white belt. Who does? But they basically like, yeah, it's like going to the gym. We go, we work out, we roll, we have coconut water, we hang out, we talk. And I'm just like, man, I had the wrong focus. You're looking at this end goal of this black belt, but it's more about the journey. Is, it, is that a fault with us in the service that we see something and we feel like we have to go to the nth degree with it, whatever we pick up? Like I find that with guitar and maybe singing too. People ask, you, how long have you been playing for? And it's like, well, <laughs> you tell them and it's like, that's a long time. And you really think about it. You should be a lot better than you are. How long is it? Go five. Yeah. And you look at that amount of time, if you went hardcore into something, how good you would be. But my question is, do you really have to take everything in your life and make it to black belt level? No, there's an awareness operations and technician level. The biggest thing with me is just be a good firefighter. Know how to stretch line. After that, if you don't want to be involved in special ops, don't do it. You need to know how to be a firefighter because these things are growing faster than they ever have. And you know, you're putting my life on the line. If you're not stretching a line in and I'm coming up as the fourth or fifth truck and now my crew or another crew has to fix something that you have not done, that's a problem. And it's firefighting. Sure, it's a lower incidence, but there's many, many mornings I come in, open up the cab to check in my stuff, and it smells like a bonfire in the rig. We go to these things. And the worst thing is, is when you go to a slower hall that doesn't go to a lot of them, those guys should be out drilling more. But that's a hard sell. But if you come to a new level of wisdom with hobbies outside that you don't necessarily have to be a black belt and all those things. When I tore my bicep and I couldn't fight for a little while, I was really disappointed because I was like, man, I was really going hard at this. I'm accelerating through it. I'm learning a lot. And boom, you tore your bicep. It was actually misdiagnosed as a uh, dislocation. So I went back into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I tore it more, like a lot more, almost completely. I was like really bummed out. What am I going to do? Then I heard this, hey man, the goal is not to be that. The goal is to have fun and do this and learn and learn. Personally, it's funny when you do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, or I also do Muay Thai as well. Some of the friendliest people on the planet, both places, just could rip you apart or punch your lights out, but the nicest people. My goal originally was self-defense, protect myself and my family. I take a walk down Queen West downtown, which is my neighborhood. A guy of my build, for some reason, attracts drunk idiots to try and pick a fight with you, right? And it's like, I don't know, why? Why? So it's self-defense, but then you kind of get this when you go really, really heavy and hard martial arts and you gain your confidence, you almost treat it like dog shit on the sidewalk. You just avoid it. You don't want to step in it. You don't want to get involved in it. You don't have to clean it off your shoe. You just kind of avoid it. And I find the more martial arts I do, the less I'll road rage or get angry. Or if somebody like road rages on me, I'm just like, okay, that's fine. That's totally cool. I've done 10 years of yoga and they're like, oh, yoga chills you out and all that stuff. Yeah, kind of. It's while you're doing it, it's meditation and you can do, you know, visualization of the stresses leaving your body and everything like that. 
but it's fighting is really calm me down. Yoga is good to relax and stretch. And uh, it is good for your head. I do not argue that at all. But the other day we were in jujitsu and I took my daughter there because it's March break. I was rolling with a high time guy, really high time guy. And he was just about to get me in a choke. I'm like, oh man, I'm going. I'm going to be browning out blackout soon. But I looked and I saw my daughter look up at me and I go, see Parker, daddy's in a very, very, very bad position right now. But what daddy has to do is slow down. Think about it. Control. Get control. Then get position and get out of it. So I said that to her and the guy, fight, he didn't let off. And I didn't want him to. And he did not let off. And she's watching me. And I got my way out of it. And then I stood up and as a joke, I was like, yeah, eagle rising from the ashes. Papa, let's go, right? <laughs> but that's an example for life too, right? When you push yourself hard, then other things in life don't stress you out or get you as angry. And, and I had fun. And even telling the story, I feel like energized telling the story because I just love that feeling of just like redlining it, pushing it, pushing it. And the funny thing is about martial arts too, when you're fighting, and you start getting tired, they see it. So that's when they start going harder. So it's not like going to a spin class where you go, man, I'm going to go harder now. I don't choose that. It's the other guy that chooses how hard you're going to go. And they may be waiting you out. They totally are, especially in boxing or Muay Thai. People hold up their fists and they get all tense in the shoulders and they're just emptying the gas tank standing still. You just got to relax, man. Float like a butterfly. Stay like a bee. <laughs> and I'll do that too. Hold my arms up really high and just like drop them down to where they can protect my face. And you just, oh, okay, relax, relax. Because you can feel yourself getting tense because somebody's trying to punch your face off your head, right? So I love it. It's intimidating, but it gets to a point now you walk into a new gym and go, yeah, teach me something. It's not as scary as it used to be. I'm learning something new and they're all good people. Like with the bicep tear, have you experienced any other physical, mental challenges, setbacks during your career? Physical, knock on wood, no, back, like chronic back pain, which like I said, I started doing yoga like 10 years ago and that really helped a lot. I enjoy it. It's something I have to do every day. Even this morning, I woke up at 4.30, had a workout before I came here because like my head needs it. I find that it makes my head work better. And I was talking to a psychologist or I don't know the proper, what she is, but she does something with your thing between your ears. But she was even saying it does, it changed the chemistry of your brain. And I literally will wake up at 4.30 like I did this morning, get a workout in before the kids wake up, I actually physically need it. You talk about mental possible setbacks, like we're talking about the ghosts. I was at a homicide once. That I kind of recognized it as a homicide immediately, but it wasn't dispatched as such. That one, it comes back at you. And when it first happens, like you kind of shake your head and like physically shake your head and just like try and get out of it. But I found heavy physical exercise for me, it just peels the layers off. When I work air ambulance, it's an eight minute bike ride, right down Bathurst, right into the city center airport. I'm there. So a really bad call last year, and it was so bad, even my partner said, you know, my last day on the aircraft, he was going on to a management position, and him and I are really good friends. He said, my last goddamn day on the aircraft, and I got to go to this. And he hands me the phone, and it was a horrific pediatric call. Like, we walked in there. Medics were crying. Hospital staff crying. And you walk in there in that flight suit, and they're like, looking at you. Let's do this. You know, like that call, I just rode my bike. Got on my bike, and... uh the city is actually a pretty steep gradient from the water. It, when you're in a car, you don't notice it. But when you're on a bike, you notice it. But I just kept on going north. Kept on going past my house. Pass, pass, pass. I just needed it. I wasn't like a wreck. But I was like, I just need to peel this off. I need to diffuse what's in me right now. Switch the chemicals in your brain. Yeah, switch those chemicals. Every morning, my cup of coffee, I don't watch the news. I sit in my hot tub and look at the stars and the clouds at four in the morning. No phone, no media, no nothing. Last night, I was going to go sit in the hot tub for a bit. You know, I was going to pick up my phone and bring it out there with me. My head just felt like 
tense, like I was saying, the shoulders when you're fighting. And I put my phone down, and I immediately relaxed. And I walked out there and sat in the hot tub and looked at the stars. 12 hours ago, I did that. And it's just like, man, those phones change your head. And I put it down, I felt better. So you've discovered a good balance yeah. of the high-intensity pressure cooker situations and the oh. complete... Just, it's, we call it meditation, call it whatever you want. Be with your thoughts, be with yourself. Some that bothered me a lot more than I thought it did at the time was we had the Thamesgate explosion. It came in as a warehouse fire. Apparently the initial reports on the dispatch terminal was like, it's a vacant, it's a vacant warehouse, nothing's in there. First in crews, investigated, forced a door, found cold smoke. So there was some type of fire, but the sprinklers had put it out. I spent uh, most of my career in that district near the airport. It's a lot of industrial and cold smoke fires. That's what you do, right? You force a door. It's cold smoke. Start opening up doors, open it up, find out where the seat of the fire was. Maybe put it like a, a couple of hot spots. That's it. Went from this. So the guys found cold smoke, upgraded it to a full response, went to a full response. And at some point when all the full response apparatus got there, there was a l- huge explosion and the whole building went up. It went from a nothing showing fire to a conflagration of the entire block just on fire yeah the video footage is incredible yeah it's insane and i remember seeing it on the horizon uh we were already out on the air and i just girl driving for me said uh oh man i wish we were there right now i said this is not a fire we do not wish to be at but let's go start heading in that direction we weren't even dispatched to it yet when that explosion happened the uh pumper company was just about to make entry to that building when these cinder blocks, the biggest cinder blocks I've ever seen in my life, not the regular ones that you see in schools, gymnasiums, these were massive. They're probably like three feet by two feet. Came down raining on these guys. And at the time, all we heard was the mayday. And it was funny. You know, we talk about, you know, the rookie this, the rookie that. The guy that called the mayday that day was the youngest member out of all those people. And I even told the recruit class that we have going on right now, listen, just because you guys are brand new doesn't mean you don't have a thought process. So if you see something, tell us if I tell you not to worry about it, then don't because I may know something, but you do have a thought process. And I even said that back when I taught at the colleges, a lot of those people were people that weren't ever going to get in the fire service, but I wanted them to know that their opinion is still valued. So that ended up happening. We heard a mayday. We heard people getting dragged out and we're like, what's, what's going on? Who, which truck is that? Who got hurt? What's, and it was like you said, the video, it was just a conflagration. It was like, I couldn't believe it. It was a, aerosol cans flying everywhere so with that there was a bunch of explosions and we got dispatched to nearby factory that caught on fire because of that original fire so this sent stuff sailing all over the area so now we're trying to figure out what's going on and who are you going to text because the guys there are a little bit preoccupied then we get dispatched to this warehouse that's on fire and the first in ladder aerial truck goes to the front i zoom around back to go to the Charlie side, force the door, stretch a line in. I grab my phone as we're going in. I'm like, okay, this is working fire. But I still grab my phone, put it in my pocket. And I'm like, what is going on? What's happening here? They put us on a different channel because of the chaos that was going on next door. I make an entry and it's funny, the radio report was like, we have a fire in a warehouse. And I'm thinking, man, these guys just had a fire in a warehouse and this is what happened. And I'm looking at these boxes of furniture or something stacked up super high. We're throwing water. There's flames going over in the ceiling and everything. Uh, a district chief's yelling at me because we're in too deep. And it's like, I'm not too deep. I'm, there's a door right there. Like, I'm, But they can't see. And with the chaos happening, they're like, not again, not again. We had to handle that, put that fire out. And still with like no information, it's like, what happened? And then I'm getting texts. They're doing CPR on somebody. I was like, oh, oh, who, what, 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 what? Then I find out 
yeah, it's these guys. And one of the guys was the guy that was a rookie on my truck a long time ago. And I was like, oh, jeez. Him and I had such a good rapport, right? And every time, you know, we'd see each other, I'd mispronounce his last name. He'd mispronounce mine. And we'd just start laughing and everything like that. Just the salt of the earth guy. Just a great guy. The captain that got hurt was a guy I studied for my captain's exam with. The other two guys that got hurt, you know, I said this was my district for most of my career. So I knew all these guys very, very, very well. And, you know, I got to give thanks to the paramedics there that night. They did something to save his life. I can tell you from experience, a lot of paramedics wouldn't have done it or thought of it or even gone. These paramedics went into that conflagration, put high risk to themselves to do that. So I'm forever thankful for what those guys did. So this call happens and I'm like, okay, um, where do I put this? One of the guys, the guy that was my rookie years ago, who I just consider a friend now, he had 42 broken bones. He's at the trauma center downtown. Nobody's allowed to go see him. Okay, cool. Nobody's allowed. So I land on the roof there two days later and I go down to see him. I go in and I go, I'm looking for so-and-so. I'm looking for Tim. I talked to Tim about talking about this and Tim said he's happy to hear talking about it. Went down, looked in the room and I said, that's not him. And they said, yeah, that's him. And I looked at the chart and I was like, that's him. Oh my God. Ademinous, swollen, huge, intubated, you know, all this other stuff. And I'm like, oh, it's not good, man. This is not good. But if anybody can help him, it's them. St. Mike's downtown. If anybody can help you, that's where you want to be. And they, like I said, the quick actions of the paramedic. He was not in a good position for a while. And I used to go down and visit. You know, it was kind of a thing when we'd land at St. Mike's. They'd know that I would go up to the floor. Give me a few minutes. I got the phone on me. If we got a call, let me know. I'll meet you up on the roof. So then the first day came where he was alert and oriented. And I walked in and he saw me. He was really excited to see me. It was almost like what we see each other like on the fire ground, like mispronouncing the name and, you know, joking around and laughing. And, uh, I don't, I was just happy to see that person there again. He was there again. What is the EG? Is his brain working properly? Is it this? Is it that? Like, these are all conversations and everybody's coming to me to ask it. Like what? Okay. They said this. What is this? They said this. And I never said it ain't looking good. I explain it and go, he's in trouble. He ended up through rehab, extensive rehab. He's the only guy back at work now. And his spirit is still there. And like I said, I talked to him a few days ago and I said, look, I'd like to talk about the Thamesgate explosion. I said, the reason I want to talk about it is because I didn't even realize how badly it rattled my cage. I knew that that night was chaos. Everything happened that night, you know, and I was just kind of concerned with make sure that he gets back, make sure that everybody's okay. Talk to them. I even changed the ringtone on my phone to the super loud when him or one of the other guys would text message me, they were involved. It was like this super loud. People are like, what is that? And I'm like, it's the loudest text message tone I can get because I don't want to ignore this. I'm not ignoring him for 10 seconds, getting back to him. We talked for a long time, but I didn't realize it. That was April, 2014. You know, I go to barbecue and I'm like, oh, it's four o'clock. I might as well have a beer because I'm going to barbecue soon. I'll just have a drink. Oh, I barbecue. You get a barbecue with beer and I'm making excuses and stuff like that. And then it started just to become a habit. And then my wife one day said, you know, you're drinking too much too early. I kind of like stood there. I was like, well, I'm barbecuing. Like, you know, you make excuses for it because that's what people do. And then she said, you know, you're on edge all the time. You're cranky. You're talking about this. She goes, I can tell by the things you say, you wished you were one of them that night. And I was kind of like, oof. Oh, <laughs> I know. It's hard to say. When she said that, it kind of like gave me the feeling it just did right now. I just like, holy shit. Man, this did fuck me up. It's the thing. You get bad calls, the kid calls, the family member that you have to deal with. You know, you got to explain to a family member that your, your loved one's passed. Those are the ones. Those, oh, these are the ghosts. These are the ghosts. But this one was one, it 
didn't look like the other ones, but it's the one that affected me the most. You know, when you get these bad calls and you, like I said, you kind of shake your head because you just got to try and get it off. And for me, that, that lasts like 10 seconds. I'm like, okay, that call's gone. I shook my head, take a deep breath, I'm good. But there's people who live with that 24 hours a day. And I couldn't imagine that. Now I see why people don't end up living with it. Right? Yeah. They end it. Luckily, I don't know what it is in me that just, I can diffuse it. But then obviously with this, and I wasn't depressed or anything after the explosion and everything happened, but apparently from others, my family, which is the most important to me, that's where it was being affected. And I was like, whoa, oh man. And you is... needed them around you to notice it. <sighs> I didn't. Because the change was slow? Yeah, it was slow. You know, you're just encroaching on a bad area. You're encroaching and then it becomes comfortable and then you encroach a little bit more. That becomes comfortable and encroach. And I could see if somebody wouldn't say something, you have a beer at six o'clock, you have a beer at five o'clock, you have a beer at four and all of a sudden it's 10 a.m. and you're shit faced. I was really glad that she said that and like, it rattled my cage. I, it was good that somebody was there to realize that for me because I didn't. And you wouldn't have seen it at work because it's not like we drink beer at work or anything, right? Did you witness other people struggle and in different ways? Yeah. I had another coworker that got in trouble for screwing up on a call. And the thing is like when you screw up on a call, you know, you kind of admit it. That's where it diffuses it. You stop. I, yeah. I screwed up. What can we do to mitigate this? He kind of just spiraled, spiraled and still, you know, things got worse and worse. And I think he turned to alcohol even more and more and more. And the worst thing was, is like, we could all see it. And I remember the last time I talked to him, He's like, oh, we're going to get together for the birthday parties and we'll do this and that. And I was like, yeah, I was like kind of dismissive. I just saw him downtown on the street and I was kind of like, man, this guy's a mess, man. Like trying to dis distance myself a little bit. Like we were really, really good friends. I did the opposite of what I should have done. How much more can I help? And that's kind of something that um, I kind of wish I did more because then all of a sudden, boom, he's in the emergency room and then he's in the ICU and now he's dead. That was a struggle and he was a good friend of mine and my locker currently, I open my locker and his picture's right there. So I see it every day. I mean, I should have done more. And, you know, I even wish that that text message that he sent, the last text message, you know, the phone automatically deletes it after 30 days. I wish I had screenshot that or took a picture of it. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Like, what can you do? But And there's a lot of other people around him in his life. And it doesn't always have to be. Well, and I, yeah, I definitely wasn't the closest, but I was not the furthest. And we were a lot tighter previously. You see his picture, my old Facebook pictures and stuff like that. Like, we worked together a lot. Relationships have been flow. But do you openly, obviously, talk about it with your crew? Like, your crew's got a good open rapport. Of... Oh, amazing. What we did for special operations, we kind of revamped our, our shift. We basically said we want a senior guy, we want a, a guy with some years, and we want somebody that's brand new, all with different skill set. It's funny, when we wrote the um, skills inventory sheet, air quotes, for special operations, you know, people were like, well, what is this? How, I have to write a resume to be on this truck? And it's like, no, it's a skills inventory, which some people took offense to, but... You know, we're just trying to put this together. And maybe there are sleeper cells out there of guys that are great. The junior guy in my truck is amazing firefighter. Didn't know him before he showed up on my rig. Great at construction. You know, I may know stuff about trench, but I don't know how to build a 7x7 LVL like he does. And that's what he does. All the guys, I'm very lucky. Like, it takes a lot of work to be on that truck. But it's so worth it when you get to work with guys like that. And it puts other calls in perspective that aren't as severe. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. What have been the most challenging and satisfying parts of being an instructor for you? So as an instructor, doing any public speaking, I prepare far, far ahead. I wanted everything to go really well. So last course that we did was out east. 
And it sounded like things were disorganized. I was like, oh no, it's going to be a nightmare. So I got a hold of the guy in charge out there and told him, we need this, we need this. And, you know, Brass called the guy out there and got some tools for me to go there. Like everybody kind of came together. And it turned out that the guy that was in charge for that city had everything more perfect than I've ever seen it. So I overprepared, but I'd rather overprepared. This is my reputation, but it's not only mine, it's all of my co-instructors that aren't here. Their reputation's on the line. It's really good to have a class be engaged. So I over-prepare, I'm nervous, but then once I stand up in front of the class, I just go. And I was the same way with Trench last fall with all the uh, provincial partners and everything. Feedback is huge. Yeah, totally. I love it when they say it's the best course we ever had and Brass and I were just at a course far away from here. And one of the training officers was in the class and like two people were like, this is the best course we've ever had. And the training officer was like, what the fuck? And he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't kidding either. He was like, you could see, he was like, I'm right here, right? Like, like, well, they, they, they met out of outside training agencies, obviously, right? Like, so again, tact, discretion, Save diplomacy. Save a little face. Yeah. yeah, tact, discretion, diplomacy, tact, discretion, diplomacy, right? I'm so satisfied when the course is over and then you build these friendships and like you get to teach with guys, taught with a guy from Boston, Kenny Hayes, amazing dude. He's a writ specialist, Mayday. You learn so much from each other. You learn so much from the students. You hone your own skills. Like I said, I haven't done a forcible entry class in a while, but- I still know how to run it. I still know how to hit the irons. I know how to tell people how to do it properly. And then watching them and just giving them that foundation in the classroom. A lot of guys, ah, I want to do hands-on. But once you have that foundation and you understand why you're doing something, man, they just go to it. They're hardworking. They're engaged. You know, a lot of good questions. I just love it. I, I will never stop teaching, hopefully. It gives me purpose. It feels good when other people hit it out of the park, you know, in the final scenarios. What are your thoughts on the concept of brotherhood and firemanship? I would look at those as two different things and I may be off the mark on that. So there's like brotherhood would be, Hey man, he's a good dude. Give you the shirt off his back. Whereas firemanship is man, that guy knows how to force doors. That guy can stretch a line up a stairwell. Like nothing I've ever seen. I think one is very skill set heavy. Well, the other one is brotherhood. I'm just trying to think of another word for it. You know, guys just get it. Relationship based. Totally relationship based. There's a lot of great guys out there that, you would love to hang out in the kitchen with. But there's other great guys that you want to be there when it's hitting the fan. Uh, and that's the thing. Some of the guys that aren't the best at firemanship are amazing with the brotherhood. Like, they're just good people, right? So you can't really, how do you discount that? I don't know. It, it, it's kind of a tough one to answer. I think that both are important. If you have both, which we know a lot of guys that have both, heavy. And... Those are your one percenters or whatever they call, right? They have the brotherhood and they have the firemanship and they want to share information and they want to make sure other people do well, empower them. The empowering part, that's part of the brotherhood. But if you don't have proper firemanship, how are you supposed to empower people with your lack of knowledge? The best guys have both. And if you can't have both, it's, I wouldn't say one's more important than the other because at a working fire, I'll tell you which one I want, right? right? <laughs> but around the hall, I can tell you which one I want too. It's nice to have nice guys around, but... If you can't help me when I need it, if you can't force a Charlie side door and I'm trying to get through it, that's a problem. And it's not that hard, like the firemanship stuff. It's just, you have to want to learn. Did I had a, a crew the other day come up to me at station and go, hey, we want to learn about this. I said, yeah, okay, no problem. What do you need? So I sent them stuff about forcible entry and on vehicle rescue, like right then. I walked into my office and said, I'll send. Like, holy cow. That's when you got to do it. Yeah. You just asked me about it. I'm going to give it to you. What am I say? Ah, eh, you're not in my district. Eh, whatever. Take it all. Take it and learn. Learn from it. And if you want more, I'll give you more. As an instructor, always show them how to do it first. You put the irons in somebody's hands and go, 
Okay, force this door. Nope, you did that wrong. Nope, do it this way. No, 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 no. Show them first. The end result. You got it. What the goal is. Right? If I want to trick my students, I'll hide their car keys. I don't want to throw the irons in their hands and say, all right, let's 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 watch you mess it up. And I'm going to embarrass you in front of your guys. No, 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 no. Let's do this. Like gap, set, force. This is why we do this gap. This is why we set. This is why we force here, right? Give them a full understanding of it and then walk them through it once slowly. Okay, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. Whether it's with that, whether it's with trench rescue, where are you going to shoot your primary strut to protect the patient? You got 10 minutes to get that panel set in. That's our goal. That's our this. But this is how we're going to do it. Also having a sense of humor. They need that break throughout the entire process. I'm sure you've done courses where like, okay, this is my icebreaker. And there's some stupid video that everybody's seen on YouTube a hundred times or on Facebook a hundred times. Like, geez, you know what? The icebreaker should just be you. Hey, this is who I am. This is the experience I bring to the table. And you set the tone for the day or the week or whatever it is. I'm here to help you learn. I'm here to learn from you. I'm a laid back dude. This guy's a laid back dude. We're here to help you. I don't need an icebreaker. The sense of humor, all the guys that I'm friends with in the fire service are guys, the instructors. I became friends because they were good instructors and good people. We weren't all buddies that said, hey, let's all go work for brotherhood instructors. We got drawn to each other because of our sense of humor. They're good people, empowerment, all of strengths. What I like doing when I teach a course is use that WhatsApp and put everybody on it. Then throughout the week or days that you're doing the course if there's any questions people text it on that but the better thing is is sending pictures and then you send the pictures and it doesn't downgrade the quality like a lot of other things do and a lot of people have iphones some people don't this is an app third party you can just put in i told the guys in the last course i said i do through the lock probably once a month and people like really and a lot of people said to me like i've been doing this for 30 years i don't do through lock once it's not your game plan you don't do it and i said i guarantee you once a month and in the two weeks after I did that course, I sent them that WhatsApp. I showed them through two through the locks that we did because we didn't want to break anything. We went in and investigated. Here you go. I put them on video and said, look, through the lock. You know, So I'm looking forward to getting stuff back from them. Uh, and then open lines of communication. If they contact me three years from now, whatever you need, man, happy to help out. Because I know that they would be happy to help me out. They are amazing hosts. So you've met a lot of people through instructing. You've probably mentored or brought on a lot of rookies how long does it take you to size someone up where you know if they have it or they don't or if they have the potential to have it or they don't i don't know like that's a that's a really tough question because a lot of people are really good at bullshitting right people sometimes have these prescribed answers to questions what's your biggest fault oh i'm a perfectionist all right enough with the shit maybe start asking different questions what i value is guys that were in the emergency services before they got on full-time, like you're a volley, you're a medic or something like that. Like when I was on my interview panel, they said, uh, tell us about being a team player. And everybody else talks about soccer and football and da, da, da. I said, well, you're near a fire. The guy doesn't open up the roof and give you, you know, start venting. You're going to get the heat pushed down on you hard and you're first in line. And your pump operator's got to make sure that you get water to that line. And I, I, I did that. And they're like, the older chief sat back and they're like, oh my, yeah, okay. This guy's not talking about soccer. Talking about the game plan that we're going to hire him for. I don't know. I'm not on these panels. And the thing is, like, I think I could be fooled too, but like, I don't know. The hiring process, like, if we could get back to, hey, you went to college X. I want to talk to your instructors. But the instructors, and I know because I was one, we couldn't say anything negative about the student. How do you get around that? Like, I'll tell you, I did. They'd say, oh, do you know so and so? I was like, yes, he handed his assignments in on time. What about this guy? I would love to have him on my truck. He's one of the hardest working guys I've ever seen. But there's not enough of that. It's a crapshoot. 
guy that I know that teaches for another college was apparently saying, or he's seeing, people are trying to get on the job because it's a good job with good benefits. Being like, advertised that way now. Ugh. Okay. But you know what? There'll always be enough guys and girls to do the job. There's going to be us that are going to be motivated. I know one guy is one of the best firemen on our job. He said the first 10 years, he was just asleep. Just didn't realize it. And then something clicked in him. And I would have him have my back, which he wouldn't be. He'd be on the nozzle. He'd be grabbing that. Sometimes things just click with guys. And then sometimes things go the other way. When people get beaten down, they just turn it off. Usually not with those guys. And not a lot of non-motivated guys suddenly get motivated. I don't know what the answer is. Like, I, I know I'm not even answering that question. I've never been on a panel. Uh, you know, I've been interviewed. But I just don't like the rehearsed answers that we all hear. But I'm pretty sure I said I was a perfectionist as well, which I kind of am. But, you know, and now all these colleges are basically telling guys how to pass your interview. Check those boxes so the HR guy can do this. Best person for the job. Like, take a name off it. Just everybody's a number. Get a third-party agency to do all the testing. And just, all right, this is where it lands. This is who we're hiring. Yeah, it floored me um, interviewing uh, Rob Martin, Dep Chief at uh, in Kitchener. Yeah. And he said that they have firefighters on their hiring panels as part of the panel. Well, that's good. Because I know nothing about human resources. So I may have a perspective that they don't. Maybe they can sniff out bullshit better. We're hiring now, and a lot of departments are like, oh, we're heavy on prevention. We're heavy on prevention, which those guys, the prevention guys... They save lives. This is why we don't have 250 people dying in movie theaters anymore because the stuff they do before we get there, right? But now they're trying to train our firefighters to do that, which they do need to know that stuff, but they need to be firefighters first. Like that needs to be the focus. That's the most dangerous thing that we're going to do. Uh, do you hire all guys from farms? I don't know. Uh, maybe farms. I never grew up on a farm. It turned out okay. I think you're just rolling the dice with it and you got to go with your gut. And sometimes your gut is wrong. Sometimes it's right. Who knows? It's tough. Tough, tough. I do not envy people on panels at all, especially when you're on a panel and they go, this is the testing we're going to do. What they should be doing testing is, is throw ladders. Well, you don't know how to throw a ladder? Oh, then you obviously didn't do pre-service or you haven't worked uh, with this stuff. Why don't we get back to that? Putting stuff together, using tools. Starting a generator or whatever it is. Whatever it is. Or what is your other tangible skill? You're a medic. Because, you know, a medic would be pretty valuable. What, 40% of our calls are medical. So, and then the ones that involve rescue, there's a patient there. So I think that's definitely valuable too. Yeah, it's it's tough. I don't know what the what the right solution is. And <laughs> I guess I flopped on that question, but there's so many different variables that I just don't know anything about. No, it's more about the conversation and is about nailing down a specific uh, answer. Yeah. Let's finish off on your recommendation for people that are thinking about getting into the service. Maybe even thinking about giving them advice to look past the interview into to start building a foundation for them to be the type of firefighter that you would want to work with. What would you recommend they do? There was a time where anybody that would say that to me, I'd spend all this time like, hey, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then a lot of them just don't do it. So then I got to this point where I'm like, uh, whatever, just apply. Now, I'm not wasting my time with anybody. But now I'm to this point again where I'm like, I'll tell you what, you start here and do this, then come talk to me. I've had people come talk to me and say, what do I need to do to be a firefighter? Well, you need to go to school. You need to get your this license. While you're waiting, you're young, right? You're 17. Go to a paramedic program. Get that. Or get a skill. Learn how to build stuff. Be an electrician. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Do it or don't. Come talk to me later. But I'm not wasting much more than that. And I've seen people while I'm talking to them say, 3,000 people are applying for this job. You need to do this. And they go, ugh. Okay, that's the end of that conversation. So I don't waste my time with a lot of people now, but I will little help, but you've got to do this and then come back to me and talk. 
And once you do get hired, just realize how lucky you are. But you can say that to any recruit class and people are still going to follow their path depending on who their influences are, genetic makeup, DNA, who knows? I don't know what does it, but. You mentioned uh, Instagram a bunch of times and Facebook as well. Like, yeah. do you have any sites where or social media that you allow anyone to follow you? Do you separate that? No. Is there a place where they can find you? No, I'm, I'm fine with anybody. Like, I use my real name. I don't use a short version. I got nothing to hide. Facebook, I basically, like I said, it's mostly work type stuff. I don't really share a lot of pictures of my family and everything. Instagram, I'll do more family stuff, more pictures of the city, things like that. More of just like a kind of a creative or little outlet. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's open. I have no privacy settings. I don't put anything on there that's going to get me in trouble anyways. I really think about that. There was an incident, I mentioned one of our trucks got hit on the highway. And one of the people at that call said to me, oh, can you send me the pictures that you got of the truck where it got hit and then the car that hit the trucks? No problem. So I sent it to that person and a few other guys on my crew. But I gave a narrative. This is what happens when a moron drinks and drives and hits a fire truck. Well, that was like a three-paragraph description of the event. And that ended up on page two of the Toronto Sun. Wow. Yeah. That was when the internet was kind of newish, And I was like, oh, boy. Didn't expect it to go that viral. The chief at the time ended up calling me and saying, like, you know, the legal department wants me to say to cease and desist this email and recall it. And I'm like, I don't even know what I did. I truly don't know what I did. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired for this. I wasn't the drunk driver that hit the car or the alleged drunk driver, I should say. My chief even said to me, he's a good guy. The advice that they've been told from legal is don't put anything on email that you don't want on the say, second page of a newspaper. And I was like, well, good advice because nobody really told us any of that. So I motivated the department to have a policy on emails. Innocent enough. It was yeah. a picture of a fire truck that got hit by a car and it, oh, Man, that... But another example of what you just said about experience is sometimes something you have after you, the time you needed it. Yeah, and that's the thing. It was not malicious. It was uh, it was an error in judgment. It was it was only supposed to go to like four people, and then we see how it goes viral. Like my buddy in Detroit got a hold of me. He's like, hey, man, is that your email? I was like, oh, damn. Wow. Damn. It's a new <laughs> it was world. Like firefighter close calls. I was like, no, 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 stop. So for Facebook, for both of my jobs, if I put anything, it's up training. Just like with training. You know, when you're teaching as an instructor, everybody gloves, glasses, helmet, because if you can do the best drill, but if somebody sees one guy doesn't have a glove on, they're like, they're so not safety oriented. They're not wearing their vest. They're not da, 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 da. You've got to scrutinize these pictures like crazy, anything you put up. And it's just almost easier not to. Like there's some people I see their social media posts of calls and I'm like, whoa, oh, no, 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 no. That's why we have CBC News, CP24. Those guys take pictures and then those are the ones you can put up because, and plus they're pictures of us anyways, which is pretty cool. There's enough of it out there. You don't need to be taking your own. Oh, zombies, man. You land a helicopter in the GTA on a scene call, there's like 400 cameras of zombies walking towards you. It's like they want to get stuck in the blender. It's crazy. So you don't need to take pictures. Other people will. Has that changed your perception of getting off the truck on scenes where you realize everything you do is filmed? Uh, 100%. Got to be aware how it looks. I'm going to mitigate the incident first, but... You know, when you see people smiling outside of a, a house fire where somebody just lost their house, mm-hmm. then that ends up, you know, the media is really good with us. I've got to give a ton of credit to the media. They always make us look good. And I think our perceptions of the media is, uh, at least I am, and I'm trying to change other people's, is like, I've been at some calls where guys did some things that were not good. And the media never puts that up. They always make us look good. So when we do open houses at the air ambulance hangar or when we're doing a call at three in the morning, we cut somebody out of a car and I see, you know, a media guy there. 
patient's gone, right? Patient is out of the picture. I'll go, look, at this is what we did here. This is called a full side removal. We had to ram this up here. We did this. Explain it to them because those guys always make us look good. And, and I they've always, got to appreciate that. Oh, I always say thank you for what you guys do because you guys always make us look good. People have that old mentality of like, the press guys with their hats it says press in it with their cameras with the flash bulb going off like get back media get back it's like why well, they never put people's faces on they're very respectful there's no laws they don't they're not governed by patient confidentiality like we are but they're respectful and they don't put pictures up that have the patient's face maybe some amateur dude with a camera put on youtube might do that but not the professionals and those guys are on all of our scenes I can't say enough good things about the media that we have in the greater Toronto area. They're amazing people. They're really good. Mm. Yeah. I appreciate you doing this today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. So a marathon talk. <laughs> right on. Yeah. All right. We'll talk soon. All right. Take Thanks, care. man. Bye.